not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. See ya, stuck. That's hello in Hungarian. Welcome to Tuckered Out. I'm Troy. <laughs> I'm Tyler and was not expecting to be spoken to in Hungarian. <laughs> <laughs> And this is a podcast where I only know one word in Hungarian. <laughs> how you doing, Tyler? Pretty well, Troy. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, we have a hell of a week ahead of us. Before we jump in, uh, I think we get some patrons to thank. Uh, correct. We do have patrons to thank. And I just want to say to this first person that I resent you for how long your name is. <laughs> uh, but I love you for supporting our show, so thank you. Um, okay. My opening argument in this knowledge fight is to clean up aisle 45, but I'm tuckered out, is just asking questions. <laughs> Thank you very much. My opening argument in this knowledge fight is to clean up aisle 45, and I'm tuckered out. I think I got that right. Thank you. You, you did. That was very impressive. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and now to people with actual names. Um, Jeff Carmen is a lying, smug, pompous group thinker. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. And Becca M. is a lying, smug, pompous group thinker. Thank you, Becca. Thank you, Becca. All right. So uh, we've got a lot to go over. So Tucker spent the first week of August in Hungary. Um, so he was there from the 2nd through the 6th. He he broadcast his, his nightly show from Hungary. And then um, while he was there, he also had an interview with Prime Minister Viktor Orban. And he gave a speech at a, uh, a far right conference there. He said they also filmed. He said they also filmed an episode of Tucker Carlson Originals, but that is not out yet. Um, we'll talk about that when it comes out. Sounds good. But for now, we have kind of these three chunks to go over: the interview, the nightly show, and the speech at the conference. I just gotta say, I'm like really scared for this episode because the last time we talked about Hungary, it was not good, and now he's over there. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some uh, there's some not great stuff going on here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we are going to we're going to talk a lot about Tucker's exploits in in Hungary. But before we really dive in, I uh, I, I, I want to give a a brief overview here. What do you know about Hungarian history, Tyler? Uh, literally nothing. <laughs> See, there was a civil war once, <laughs> and I. And I suspect that's uh, that's where most of our audience is at. So, and and Tucker is going to make some passing references to Hungary's history here, and I think it behooves us to know what he's talking about. And in addition, just like th there's context here with like the the the, the reign of Viktor Orban, um, that's going to make more sense if we look at like how the how the country got there. So I'm going to do just a, a criminally brief overview of Hungary's history. This is by no means an uh, an in depth. Analysis turns out you can't become a you can't become an expert on a country's history in a week and a half, <laughs> despite Troy's best efforts, I'm sure. <laughs> so th this is really just a, a skeleton of the history, but um, it, it's 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 enough that we're gonna we're gonna have an idea of what's going on going forward. Cool. Before we step back in time, I, I want to just open with this quote from Viktor Orban uh, that illustrates kind of why I think Tucker and the American right might be so drawn to him. This was, in, this was in 2015, Orban was giving a speech to his party, and in that speech, Orban said this, quote, Hungary has the right, and every nation has the right, to say that it does not want its country to change. Hmm. 
So you can see how that might uh, that might appeal to our boy Tucky Dumps. Um, yeah. So the first thing that you need to know to understand Hungary's history is that it sits on good land. About 70% of Hungary's land is arable. The Danube River runs through it, and it's nestled It's nestled in the Carpathian Mountains, and all of this made the land desirable. And in history, when you have desirable land, you normally find that a lot of blood has been spilled over it. Hungary is no exception. There's evidence that the land was inhabited by various hunter-gatherer tribes in prehistory, but the first recorded inhabitants were Celtic. Eventually, they were overtaken by the Roman Empire. Rome didn't hold Hungary for long, though, because they were unable to defend it from the constant streams of invaders. Most notable of these invaders was Attila the Hun, who conquered the region and set up a state there in the 5th century. It was from the Hungarian plains that a lot of the Huns' horseback assaults on Europe were launched. After the death of Attila and the subsequent collapse of the Hunnic state in Hungary, control of the region changed hands between various Germanic tribes, mainly the Goths and the Gepids, until eventually another eastern people known as the Avars arrived and took control of the land, where they ruled until the 8th century, when they were destroyed by Charlemagne and the Franks. In the 9th century, the Magyar people arrived. The Magyar are believed to have originated in Siberia, and migrated all the way to Hungary under the leadership of a man called Arpad. In the year 907, the Magyar fought a battle against the Germans for the land, the Battle of Pressburg, and after three days of fighting, managed to break German occupation and cement their place in the Hungarian basin. The Magyar people are still there today. They're the group that we refer to as the modern-day Hungarians. From this point on, the Hungarians pursued an expansionist agenda, raiding and plundering much of Greater Europe, until the Battle of Lechfeld in 955, where they, were where they were decisively defeated by the Germans. After this defeat, the Hungarians pulled back from their efforts at conquest and focused instead on consolidation. So uh, a, a ruler called Stephen I came to power in Hungary during this period, and he was successful in uniting the Hungarian tribes, and uh, he also oversaw the Christianization of Hungary. So, and he would continue to support the, the, the spread of Christianity in the kingdom over the course of his reign. Um, so not only, is it, not only is it an old nation, but it's been a Christian nation for a long time. Okay. In the year 1000, Stephen was formally crowned as the first king of Hungary with the blessing of the Pope. He was canonized as a saint in 1083. Stephen's eventual death ushered in an era in which various members of the Hungarian nobility fought and jockeyed over position. But in the midst of all the infighting, they did still find time to conquer Croatia. So they, they're, they're busybodies. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta hand to them. Uh, like, they're always invading or being invaded. I was thinking about uh, conquering Croatia later. Are you busy? Uh, no, I got time. And <laughs> yeah, we can fit that in. <laughs> in, in, the mid in the medieval era, a guy named Bela III came into power in Hungary. Bela oversaw a dramatic rise in Hungary's power during this period. Medieval Hungary was characterized by construction, expansion, and, ex and an explosion of wealth. Until the year 1241 came, and with it, the invasion of the Mongols. The Mongols overran Hungary and slaughtered half the population. In the aftermath of the Mongol invasion, Hungary's subsequent ruler, Bela IV, sought to ensure that such carnage would never befall his land again. He ordered the construction of a massive defensive system of castles, which turned out to be a great idea, because in 1285 the Mongols returned. This time, Hungary was able to beat them back and force them to retreat. So, quite an improvement from having half your population killed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, let's say those castles came in handy. Um, 
The next of Hungary's would-be conquerors were the Ottoman Turks. The Ottomans closed in on Hungary after having conquered much of Eastern Europe. In response, a Hungarian general named John Hunyadi led Hungarian resistance against the Turks and eventually led, a, led the successful siege of Belgrade in 1456. Hunyadi's son Matthias became king of Hungary in 1458, and he opened the nation up to the ideas of the Renaissance. Hungary continued to thrive for a time after that, but subsequent monarchs were less adept at holding the empire together. In the 1500s, Hungary found itself dealing with both a peasant, a peasant revolt in Transylvania, which they had conquered, um, and the return of the Ottoman Turks for another shot at conquest. In 1526, the Turks defeated the Hungarians at the Battle of Mohawks, and in the aftermath, Hungary was split into three pieces. And they, they endured a difficult period where they were basically like the ground that a war between the Ottoman Empire and Habsburg Austria was fought on. Um, eventually, the Austrians gained the upper hand in that conflict and booted the Ottomans out of the region. In 1703, the Hungarians attempted an uprising against the Austrians, but ultimately were unsuccessful, and Austria maintained its grip on the region for a while longer. By the late 1700s, and especially into the early 1800s, Hungary had fallen behind the West. Hungary had fallen behind Western Europe in terms of industrial and technological advancement, which led to calls for reform. A push for modernization was led by a guy named Count Istvan Szechenyi. Szechenyi uh, helped foster a, a new nationalist fervor in Hungary's peasant class, and poor Hungarians began to champion their traditional language and culture. This nationalist fervor led to the Hungarian Revolution of 1848 against Austrian rule. This time, Hungary fared well against the Austrians, and the revolution likely would have been a success had it not been for the fact that Austria called on Russia for help. The Russian army came to Austria's aid and delivered a second victory against the Hungarian revolutionaries. This defeat did not quell the Hungarians', the Hungarians' desire for independence, though, and Austria was increasingly facing pressure from other rival powers, such as Prussia. In the face of these pressures, Austria started to fear they would not be able to beat back a third attempt at revolution. So, in 1867, a compromise was made with the Hungarians. This compromise created kind of a dual monarchy called Austria-Hungary. Uh, and in this period, Hungary underwent rapid modernization. By 1896, they would finish construction on one of the world's first underground metro systems. And also in this period, the, the cities of Buda, Obuda, and Pest were consolidated into the capital city of Budapest. And uh, this was kind of a co-capital of Austria-Hungary, along with uh, the city of Vienna in Austria. This period of growth did not quell ethnic distrust in the, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, though, and those tensions only escalated as Austria-Hungary Austria expanded its borders. These tensions came to a boiling point on June 28, 1914, when the presumptive heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated. And I'm sure most people know what happened next. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a war with the whole world and such. Okay, so he was the guy that got assassinated and started World War One. Yep. Okay. Yeah, he uh, he was the would-be heir to the uh, Austria-Hungarian Empire. Um, but then uh, the, the, they conquered Bosnia, and some disgruntled Bosnian shot him. Um, and then things started to fall the fuck apart. <laughs> um yeah, so, so World War I erupted shortly thereafter. Uh, Austria-Hungary sided with Germany in that war, and this was, of course, the side that ultimately lost. The aftermath of that defeat led to the separation of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and flung Hungary into political turmoil. 
1920 Treaty of Trianon, the treaty that formally ended World War I, redrew borders in the region in such a way that Hungary lost 70% of the land it had previously held. In the immediate aftermath of World War I, a new government called the First Hungarian Republic was created. The Hungarian People's Republic lasted only from November 16th of 1918 to August 8th of 1919, so this government lasted less than a year. Wow. Uh, the most formal successor to the First Hungarian Republic was the Hungarian Soviet Republic, a communist government which was established and dissolved in 1919, so a second government that didn't make it two years. Um, Amazing. There's, there's so much turmoil and like change of hands of power in this period, it's it's impossible to keep track of it. I mean, I mean historians have done it, but I'm not doing it here. There's just yeah. there, there was a lot of crazy shit happening during this period. Like It was very unstable. I mean, understandably, they just lost a war in 70% of their land mass. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they, there were a lot, of, uh, a, lot, a lot of back and forth and rapid changes in leadership that we just aren't equipped to fully dive into here. Just know that it was a very chaotic time and, the, and things changed very quickly. When World War II rolled around, Hungary again aligned itself with Germany and once again wound up on the losing side of things. Throughout the war, Hungary's Jewish population was decimated and the economy fell into ruin. In the wake of World War II, from October 9th to 19th, Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin met for the Fourth Moscow Conference. It was at this conference that Churchill proposed the Percentages Agreement, wherein Eastern European nations would be divided between Western and Soviet spheres of influence. Pursuant to that conference, Hungary fell under the Soviet sphere of influence, and 1945 saw the beginning of Soviet occupation in Hungary. Over the next couple of years, commun communists consolidated their hold on power in the country. And by 1949, the transition was complete. A newly elected legislature, chosen from a list made up almost entirely of communists, adopted the constitution that was basically, basically a carbon copy of the Soviet Union's constitution. Um, and Hungary became the Hungarian People's Republic. This was a one-party state controlled by the Hungarian Working People's Party. The leader of that party was a man named Matthias Rakosi. Rakosi modeled himself after Joseph Stalin, and even described himself as Stalin's best Hungarian disciple, or Stalin's best pupil. If you know anything about Stalin, then it will not surprise you that Rakosi oversaw one of the harshest dictatorships in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not a great time. Not a great time to be a Hungarian. No. Um, Has there been a good time to be a Hungarian so far? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rakosi was unflinchingly brutal. Early on, he purged dissidents from the ruling party. Uh, one of the men purged was Janos Kadar, a future leader of Hungary, who we're going to talk about in just a minute. Um, but during Kadar's interrogation, he was beaten, smeared with mercury on his skin so that, to prevent his pores from breathing, and uh, he had his mouth pried open so that his interrogator could urinate into it. Um, good stuff. How lovely. Yeah, good, good stuff. I think I've seen Janos Kadar's video on Pornhub, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, you just said that on the internet <laughs> well like this will be the time this will be the time that my mom decides she's gonna try and listen <laughs> um but yeah that th th this was a harsh and punitive regime characterized by a violent secret police force that functioned as an instrument of oppression in addition, Rakosi grossly mismanaged the Hungarian economy, and quality of life in the country rapidly declined. 
as tends to happen under dictatorships. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny how that works every yeah. single fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> when Stalin died in 1953, the Soviets supported a change of leadership in Hungary and, el- and elevated a man named Imri Nagy to, to prime minister. Nagy took steps toward political liberalization, which wound up being predictably, predictably unpopular with the Soviets, and Nagy was eventually ousted from power and Rakozy was reinstated as prime minister. As you can imagine, the Hungarian people were not thrilled to see Rakozy's return, and in 1956 they took another shot at revolution. So these, they were getting so good at revolution by this point. Just, yeah, well, I mean, you practice something, <laughs> you get good at it. In response, the Soviets rolled in with tanks to crush that revolution. About 20,000 people were killed and high-profile supporters of the revolution were executed. So better look next time, guys. <laughs> the revolution wasn't completely without its successes, though. During Nagy's time as prime minister, he released a lot of political prisoners from prison. One of the men was Janos Kadar, the man who had previously been covered in mercury and urinated into. Uh, Kadar became popular as a result of having been a victim of Stalin's purges, which he leveraged as proof that he had stood against the former Rikosi administration, and he was able to garner enough support that in 1956 he was, elected to, he was elected to the Hungarian Politburo. He quickly became the leader of the Hungarian Socialist Workers' Party, and by the end of the year had been nominated by Moscow to be the new leader of Hungary. Kadar declared general amnesty for dissidents who had participated in the revolution, and curbed some of the excesses of the secret police. He also charted a relatively liberal cultural and economic course, and even decrim- he even decriminalized homosexuality in 1961. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he he still was like a, a totalitarian communist, but as far as those go, he was probably the best one. I guess so. Uh, in 1966, he approved what was called the New Economic Mechanism, which moved Hungary away from a strictly planned economy to a more de- decentralized one. And then, in 1989, Hungary tore down a portion of the Berlin Wall, an early symbol of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of communism in Hungary. From 1989, Hungary transitioned into a democracy, and enjoyed minor minor celebrity status in the Western world as a beacon of democracy in the former Soviet bloc. And this brings us to Viktor Orban. So, uh, but before we before we talk about Orban. What do you think about Hungary? <laughs> uh, I'm glad I don't live there. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of like one of those times there have been very few good times in history to be a Jewish person. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's ever been a good time to be a Hungarian <laughs> in history. Yeah, a lot of uh, having to fight for your life and getting taken over and being ruled by despots. Um, is it despot or despot? Whatever. I think it's despot, but... Um, I was, trying to, I was trying to work a Home Depot joke in there, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> um, in 1988, one year before the formal collapse of communism in Hungary, Viktor Orban was a college student and a vocal anti-Soviet activist. This was the year that he founded the Fidesz Party, a political party that he still leads to this day. When that party was founded, it built itself as a libertarian anti-communist party. That platform was popular in Hungary at the time, but what catapulted Orban to fame was a speech that he gave in 1989, just after the Iron Curtain fell. Orban was fresh out of college, and he, he took the stage at the Edmund Burke Political Conference in 89, where he demanded that whatever Soviet troops still remained in Hungary pack up and leave. Uh, it was a bold statement, and not one without personal risk, either. So, um, among those impressed was George Soros, 
uh, a, a Hungarian who was happy to see democracy take root in his home country and who sponsored the Young Orban Scholarship to Oxford University's Pembroke College. How did I not know that the guy secretly funding us was was actually a Hungarian refugee? <laughs> yeah, and he, he paid for Viktor Orban's education. How crazy is that? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to get even crazier later. Well, this is not the last time we'll hear about Soros in this tale. <laughs> Something George Soros actually paid for? <laughs> um, but the, the, the speech at the Edmund Burke conference made, a, made Orban a star and raised the national profile of his Fidesz party. In 1998, Viktor Orban was elected prime minister of Hungary. Um, so by this point, they've been a democracy for a decade, and uh, this young guy Orban, he's been building his coalition with this libertarian Fidesz party, and he gets elected prime minister in 1998. Um, Orban served as PM from 1998 to 2002, but during this period, his party didn't have a controlling major majority in the parliament, so he had to govern by, by coalition, uh, meaning he couldn't make any particularly extreme changes. And like the people who were in Hungary at the time, they'll talk about how it, there there were there were implications even then that if Orban hadn't had to govern in coalition with other parties, that he would have been a lot more like extreme. Um, but but in this period, like he he didn't have he didn't have a majority in parliament, so that tempered what he could do quite a bit. Sometimes helpful. <laughs> Orban's party lost seats in parliament in two thousand, two thousand two, and two thousand six. Uh, Orban, for his part, blamed everyone but himself for his defeat. He, he even scapegoated George Bush for his defeat in 2002 <laughs> because uh, Bush had had criticized um, Orban's scapegoating of Jewish people in Hungary. Oh, man. So, Remember when Republicans could criticize anti-Semitism? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, after, after losing his seat as prime minister in 2002, Orban did not simply retreat to the shadows and await the next election. First, he purged his party of the libertarians and took a hard right turn instead. He also went to work spreading a populist nationalist message. He tested that message first on like the poor towns on the outskirts of Hungary and kind of refined it with them and then brought it back to the cities. Um, he also built up a support network in Hungarian churches, building a reliable base with the country's Christian middle class. It was also during this period that he actually hired an American political consultant named Arthur Finkelstein. Finkelstein had advised like both Nixon and Reagan, um, and his kind of specialty was dividing the electorate. Uh, Roger Stone was actually like, one of his disciples, um, and uh... and in the in the early two thousands he started doing work for uh, for European leaders, and Orban was one of the first to hire him. It it didn't hurt Orban's case either that Hungary had experienced the financial collapse of two thousand seven. During that collapse, there was a socialist government in power, and the left took much of the blame for the economic crisis. All of this worked in Orban's favor, and he was elected prime minister again in 2010. This time, his party secured 67% of the seats in parliament. This is important, because in Hungary, only a simple two-thirds majority is needed to make changes to the constitution. So pretty much as soon as, as, soon as the Fidesz party gets the supermajority in parliament, Orban went to work rewriting the constitution to cement his political power and ensure that he would never lose another election again. Oh no... Yep, yep. So uh, now we're getting into the the modern nightmare. <laughs> Great. Uh, among other things, what Fidesz redrew parliamentary district lines and gerrymandered, gerrymandered the fuck out of them to give Fidesz a leg up. 
um, to to create an electoral advantage for their party, which has never happened anywhere else, thank God. No, never. <laughs> I love things that only happen once. It's not at risk of happening, like, this year in our <laughs> country or anything. Um, Orban also fired civil servants en masse and installed Fidesz loyalties in important positions such as election supervisor. He implemented a media review board, and, surprise, state media began to mirror Fidesz's positions. Hmm. Uh, he lowered the retirement age for ju- for judges, which was a way of clearing out, like, like creating more judicial vacancies that he could fill with loyalists. <sighs> um, and then he uh, he weakened the constitutional court, which is like Hungary's Supreme Court, and uh, amended the constitution so that the Supreme Court couldn't strike down any laws that were enshrined in the constitution. And since Orban had a supermajority, he could put whatever the fuck he wanted in the constitution. <laughs> I see. Um. Private media was a principal target for the Fidesz power grab. After the 2010 victory, the Fidesz government used the power of the state to pressure private media corporations to sell to the state or to oligarchs who were aligned with Fidesz. Uh, tactics to try and get these organizations to sell included withholding advertising dollars, um, blocking mergers that would allow the, that would allow outlets to expand, and imposing punitive taxes on ad revenue. There's a documentary, I'll link it's on YouTube, it's called The Four Steps to Authoritarianism in Hungary. And um, the the first step is about how he he cracked down and pretty much eliminated any opposition journalists and um, it he was really effective at this. So by 2017, 90 percent of all media in Hungary was owned by either the state or a Fidesz ally. The, this media empire includes every single regional newspaper in the country. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, it's it. I mean, he he's good at this. <laughs> sure is. In addition to rampant gerrymandering, Fidesz also worked to reshape the electorate itself. A 2010 law granted citizen, citizenship rights to ethnic Hungarians in nearby countries like Romania. Um, and keep in mind there are a lot of ethnic Hungarians in neighboring states because uh, after World War I, Hungary lost 70% of its landmass. So a lot of those citizens um, who used to be Hungarians kind of stayed in these neighboring states. And um, what Orban did was uh, pass, pass this law in 2010 so that ethnic Hungarians in nearby countries could also vote in Hungarian elections. And, and Interesting. The, and those, uh, those ethnic Hungarians, they overwhelmingly support Orban, like 95%. Wow. And that's not even the shadiest of Orban's electoral tactics. So he's done this thing with, with fake political parties, as op- like fake opposition. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, so how it works is, uh, in, in Hungary, a political party needs 500 signatures to, um, like be on the ballot in an election. Okay. And so what, what Orban would do, he would have a bunch of these fake parties created and then just fill, fill their signature list with Fidesz signatures. So like the same people who signed on to support Fidesz, Orban was just like, here, you giving out these lists, these fake parties who seem like opposition, and then because um, Orban controls all the state media, he can keep confused about like who's in opposition and who's not. Um, the idea being that kind of astroturfing all these all these like uh, th- these fake parties, it divides and dilutes the anti-Fidesz vote, and so no other party ever gets a majority. Okay. Some people looked into this like. It was brazen that they copied the names off these Fidesz lists. Like even the sequence of the names was the same. Wow, and they also had a bunch of like dead people on there, <laughs> and um, 
one of the parties was run by a homeless guy who was getting paid to start this party. Um, another one is run by Orban's personal lawyer. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, it's some shady shit. They're not even trying to hide it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wildly corrupt. <laughs> God, imagine a Rudy Giuliani party. Oh yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, we're getting closer every day. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try not to think about that <laughs> too much. Uh, in addition to rampant corruption, the kind of the defining characteristic of Orban's time as prime minister has been rampant anti-immigration sentiment. So in 2015, Europe experienced the, the refugee crisis. Germany committed to taking in a million refugees. Many EU countries made commitments to, to take in refugees from Syria and other war-torn countries. Um, Orban went the opposite direction. His rhetoric began to focus almost monomaniacally on migrants and the threat that Muslim immigration posed to Europe's Christian identity and culture. He blamed the migration on German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who insisted on keeping who insisted on keeping Europe's doors open to asylum seekers, and he vowed to fight for sovereignty against Merkel's quote open borders approach. Um, wasn't well, even open borders, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, he he ended up he built a border fence along the uh, along the Serbian border, um, just a big barbed wire fence, and he boasted that migrants granted asylum in Hungary plummeted from one hundred seventy seven thousand in two thousand fifteen to just twenty nine thousand in two thousand sixteen. Getting a lot of deja vu. Yep. Also, after building that fence in two thousand seventeen, he sent a bill for the for the fence's construction to Brussels suggesting that the European Union should repay Hungary for, quote, protecting all the citizens of Europe from the flood of illegal migrants. Oh, my God. <laughs> and like Seriously? And, like, th- th- this, was, this was really important, too, just because, like, where Hungary is positioned, it was, uh, it was along just a really common migratory route, and Orban shut that shit down. Oh. <sighs> In, in addition to rampant anti-immigrant scapegoating, there's also been a lot of uh, fierce anti-LGBTQ repression in the country. Okay. Um, we we talked sense. a little we talked a little bit before about how they recently passed this law. Um, it it started out as a bill to like increase penalties for child molesters, but then they added all this extra language into the bill about um, like it's a crime to promote homosexuality or transgenderism. Uh, you you can't share content with children that depicts gay people. Um, it's it, it's it's wild. Oh my god! He's also taken a very controlling approach to education in Hungary. Under Orban, Hungary's kindergarten curriculum has been amended to promote a national identity, Christian cultural values, patriotism, attachment to the homeland, and family. In kindergarten. Oh no. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, the government withdrew financing and support for university gender studies programs and announced an effective takeover of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences, the country's premier research institution. All of this has, obviously, eroded civil liberties and democratic norms in the country, to chilling electoral effect. A report by International Election Monitors, the Office for Democratic Institution and Human Rights, examined Hungary's 2018 parliamentary elections and found that the opposition party had, quote, no meaningful chance of winning. And... Here's the part that bothers me the most. Oh, we haven't hit the thing that bothers <laughs> you the most yet? Orban's ambitions explicitly extend beyond Hungary. In a speech in July of 2018, Orban defined his project as not merely remaking Hungary, but developing a new governing ideology that could challenge liberal democracy across the West. 
He labeled his vision both Christian democracy and also illiberal democracy. And that's the big L liberal, like Western open societies. Yeah. He, he named, he named his philosophy illiberal democracy or Christian democracy. They're interchangeable in his, his rhetoric. Okay. And um, it's a democracy in the sense that you can vote for the only person on the ballot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's how we define the difference between this and more conventional notions of democracy in the speech. Quote, Christian democracy is by, ne- by definition, not liberal. It is, if you like, illiberal. And we can specifically say this in connection with a few important issues. Say, three great issues. Liberal democracy is in favor of multiculturalism, while Christian democracy gives priority to Christian culture. This is an illiberal concept. Liberal democracy is pro-immigration, while Christian democracy is anti-immigration. This is again an illiberal concept. A liberal democracy sides with adaptable family models while Christian democracy rests on the foundations of the Christian family model. Once more, this is an illiberal concept. The first step, he suggested, was for, was for people across Europe to elect nationalist candidates in the 2019 parliament elections. Quote, next May, we can wave goodbye to liberal democracy, he concluded. So, the part of that that is chilling to me, look at the three examples he gave there. Um, so, his Christian democracy is opposed to multiculturalism. Tucker talks all the time about how diversity isn't actually our strength. Mm-hmm. Christian democracy is anti-immigration. Uh, obviously, <laughs> Tucker yeah. is anti-immigration. Yeah. Um, they, they make our country, what, poorer, dirtier, and less safe? Yep. Um, and Christian democracy rests on the foundations of the Christian family model. How often does Tucker talk about the, the importance of the family and the... BLM is trying to destroy the nuclear family, and transgenderism is going to destroy the family. Pretty often. So, Tucker is on board with this program of illiberal democracy. (laughs) I don't think he would ever use that word, but he is in. So, uh, there are parts of this we'll elaborate a bit more on as we go, but that's the end of my overview. (laughs) How are you feeling, Tyler? Not good, Troy. I'm not feeling good. (laughs) Yep, this this is not a great time. (laughs) And Tucker thinks this is an ideal model for how a country should be run. Yes, he's going to say that explicitly. Oh my god. We haven't even started. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, like I said here, we've got kind of three pieces to unpack. There's the interview with Victor Orban, um, the episodes episodes of his show that he broadcast from Hungary, and um, the speech that he gave at this MCC conference. So I'd like to start with the Orban interview, and then we'll do the the nightly show, and then we'll finish on the on the speech. All right. Okay. So, um, and this Orban interview, it, it was a little bit hard to cut because Orban tends to uh, be long winded in his answers. Um, so some of these clips are a little bit long, but that it, it's not going to be like this the entire time. Okay. <laughs> Here's how Tucker introduces the interview with Victor Orban. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Of the nearly 200 different countries on the face of the earth, precisely one of them has an elected leader who publicly identifies as a Western-style conservative. His name is Viktor Orban. He's the prime minister of Hungary. Hungary is a small country in the middle of Central Europe. It has no navy. It has no nuclear weapons. Its GDP is smaller than New York State's. 
So you wouldn't think leaders in Washington would pay a lot of attention to Hungary, but they do, obsessively. By rejecting the tenets of neoliberalism, Viktor Orban has personally offended them and enraged them. What does Viktor Orban believe? Just a few years ago, his views would have seemed moderate and conventional. He thinks families are more important than banks. He believes countries need borders. For saying these things out loud, Orban has been vilified. Left-wing NGOs have denounced him as a fascist, a destroyer of democracy. Last fall, Joe Biden suggested he's a totalitarian dictator. Official Washington despises Viktor Orban so thoroughly that many, including neocons in and around the State Department, are backing the open anti-Semites who are running against him in next April's elections in Hungary. We've watched all of this from the United States, and we've wondered if what we've heard could be true. So this week, we came to Hungary to see for ourselves. We sat down with Orban for a couple of long conversations, including one this morning. In a moment, we'll show you some of that, and you can make up your own mind about it. Okay, so that was a train wreck. Um... Yeah, um, already he's he's on the defensive. Like, the, these... Corrupt NGOs are calling him a fascist in the story of democracy. In fact, he's defending democracy, and his ideas aren't even that weird. Like, like the interview hasn't started yet, and he's on the defense. Yeah. <laughs> and, as we discussed, he is destroying democracy. And before he gets into the interview, Tucker has just a little bit more ball-looking to do. But first, a word about Hungary. Even if you understand that the American news media lie... It is always bewildering to see the extent of their dishonesty. Nothing prepares you for it. We've read many times how repressive Hungary is. Freedom House, an NGO in Washington that's funded almost exclusively by the U.S. government, describes Hungary as much less free than South Africa, with fewer civil liberties. That's not just wrong. It's insane. In fact, if you live in the United States, it is bitter to see the contrast between, say, Budapest and New York City. Let's say you lived in a big American city and you decided to loudly and publicly attack Joe Biden's policies, his policies on immigration or COVID or transgender athletes. If you kept talking like that, you would likely be silenced by Joe Biden's allies in Silicon Valley. If you kept it up, you might very well have to hire armed bodyguards. That's common in the U.S. Ask around. But it's unknown in Hungary. Opposition figures here don't worry that they will be hurt for their opinions. Neither, by the way, does the prime minister. Orban regularly drives himself with no security. So who's freer? In what country are you more likely to lose your job for disagreeing with the ruling class's orthodoxy? The answer is pretty obvious, though if you're an American, it is painful to admit it, as we have discovered. With that, here's Viktor Orban. His accent's pretty thick, but his English is precise. He's worth hearing. Um, Tucker isn't even pretending to be like populist anymore he's just it's super common that people have to hire bodyguards to protect yeah. them from political censorship yeah, what the fuck is he talking about <laughs> no one has ever had their life threatened from saying they don't like joe biden yeah that's ridiculous like the the only time he's recently talked about anyone needing a personal bodyguards is when he makes fun of AOC and Cory Bush for it. And then he's talk and then he's talking about um political opposition in Hungary. There's no political opposition in Hungary. Yeah, it I guarantee you you could find some people who uh aren't speaking up because they fear retaliation. Huh? Yeah. Um 
In, in fact, the, that documentary... Like was, real, actual retaliation that might get you killed <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, oh, I got banned on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, like, that... You'll see some of that in that documentary I was talking about on YouTube. I'm going to put that in the episode description. Um, but, yeah. And I don't know whether or not Orban frequently drives himself without security, but that seems kind of like Putin with his shirt off type propaganda to me. Yeah. Oh, what a real man. He drives his own car, and he doesn't need anybody to protect him. So... At this point, um, we're, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and jump into this interview. And Tucker's first question really reveals what he is interested in here in Hungary. Mr. Prime Minister, thank you very much. So in 2015, hundreds of thousands of migrants appear on your southern border. They appear all over Europe. They stream into Germany. The rest of the EU says, welcome, please come. We can handle it. We're strong enough. Hungary stands alone in saying no. Why? Why did you take a different position on, on migration from other European countries? That was the only reasonable behavior. If somebody without getting any per- permission on behalf of the Hungarian state cross your border, you have to defend your country and to say, guys, stop. And if you would like to cross or you would like to come, there's a legal procedure. We have to do it. But you can't cross, you know, uh, without any kind of limitation and permission and any contribution and control of the Hungarian state. It's dangerous. You have to defend your people against any danger. And you think you have a right to do that? Of course. That's got from the, it's coming from the God, the nature, so all arguments with us. Because this is our country. This is our population. This is our history. This is our language. So we have to do that. Of course, if you are in trouble and there is nobody closer to you than the Hungarians, you have to be helpful. But you can't say simply that, okay, it's a nice country. I would like to come here and to live here because it's a nicer life. This is not a human right to come here. No way, because it's our land. It's a nation, it's a community, families, history, tradition, language. Nature protects your right to defend borders. <laughs> you know how those borders are naturally occurring? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing that we, we, have, we can just tell where the border grows. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's not like Hungary's borders have changed in the last hundred years. Yeah, that that's some bullshit. And it, it important to note is... Uh, it, what Tucker is touting as a model here is explicitly an end to legal immigration, which I've known for a while that he wanted, but I don't think he's said out loud. Yeah, and then this is like classic. This happens in America, too. Like, oh, immigrants have to follow the procedure, says the person who made the laws extremely difficult for anyone who wants to come. You know? yeah. yeah, and speaking of extreme difficulty, um, Orban is already lying in this interview. When he, said, very long. when he said that uh, if you're in trouble, then there's nowhere closer than Hungary, then obviously we have to be helpful. Um, implying there that they, they'll make an exception for refugees. That is bullshit. Uh, let me tell you a bit about how Hungary handles refugees under Viktor Orban. Okay. Uh, in 2018, Orban lowered the, the maximum number of refugees that the country would take in to two per day. Two per day? Um, yeah, some articles I read imply that now it's up to 10, a, a maximum of 10 per day, um, which still isn't good. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but every day, a maximum of 10 people are admitted through the Iron Gates to file their applications. However, the majority of those applications are rejected following a quick trial, and they must then leave the transit zone immediately. Authorities are now reportedly trying to employ inhumane methods to make migrants give up on their cases before they're even heard. According to reports, asylum applicants rarely receive any meals during their stays in the transit zones at all. They are kept behind bars while their applications are being processed, having no access to food. 
The objective behind this practice appears to be the intention to force asylum seekers to leave these transit zones voluntarily out of sheer hunger. According to Hungarian law, leaving the transit zone would automatically result in a rejection without ever being allowed to submit an asylum application again. In 2019, there have been 27 cases recorded of asylum seekers being left without food to eat so far. Independent Hungarian media organizations have taken to referring to this practice as starvation, which I think is a fair descriptor. Uh, in a number of cases, the migrants are only given some food after urgent decisions taken by the European Court of Human Rights had been applied, forcing Hungarian authorities to feed them. We let people in as long as they follow the rules, those rules being starve to death. Yeah, yeah it's fucking insane, dude. Um, under another law passed in June of 2020, would-be asylum seekers must first submit a, a declaration of intent and wait up to 60 days for a response. In Belgrade, the embassy's working hours have been shortened by the COVID-19 pandemic, and any business must be pure, pre-arranged via email, which I'm sure refugees have a great handle on. Yeah. Uh, the declaration itself, itself that they have to fill out runs 10 pages, which applicants are required to complete in either Hungarian or English and submit in person. Applicants are asked about their health, addictions, whether they have a criminal record, where they have traveled, and what property or cash they possess. There are questions about family links in Europe, their plans that they receive asylum, and what they know about Hungary. Submitting the declaration is just as complex, and very few succeed in doing so. In July and August of 2020, the Hungarian embassy had received only 14 declarations. According to replies to Freedom of Information Act requests, requests submitted by the Helsinki Committee to the Hungarian Foreign Ministry. So, yeah, it... If if you're in trouble and there's nowhere else to go, we'll, we'll we have to be we have to be kind, right? And that, let you starve what, to death. That's what he said to the nice man in the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a load of bullshit. Yup. <laughs> I I know that this has been said a lot, but around the time like the family separation started here during the Trump administration, it was like the cruelty is the point. Yeah, yeah. It's. We don't want you to come here seeking help. We're not. We're going to hurt you if you do. Yeah. Troy, when we started talking about Tucker Carlson, um, I didn't think that we were going to have to talk about things that were this dangerous. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> I know, man. Like this, this is what like our twenty fourth, twenty fifth episode or some shit. Like close it, somewhere, and we're here. <laughs> yeah. Um, things have gone downhill quickly. Yeah. Like, I just, I can't overstate how, how dangerous it is to normalize just, like, trying to kill people <laughs> for wanting to escape a war zone. That's horrific. Um, and everything else that you talked about, like... <laughs> creating phony political opposition so that you can maintain your dictatorship like speaking of things rapidly declining let's hear where this conversation goes next oh boy saying what you just said which i think will seem obvious to a lot of our viewers was very offensive to a lot of countries in western europe to their leaders because because the many european countries decided to open a new chapter of their own history of the nation they call it a new society, uh, which is a post-Christian, post-national societies. They believe firmly that if different communities, even huge number of, let's say, Muslim communities, and the original inhabitant 
let's say, Christian communities are mixed up, the outcome of this will be good. There is no answer whether it will be good or bad, but I think it's very risky. And the chance that it will be not good, but it will be very bad, is obvious. And each nation has the right to take this risk or to reject this risk. We Hungarians decided not to take that risk, to mix up our society. That's the reason why they attack Hungary so harshly, and that's the reason why my personal reputation is very bad. You know, I'm, I'm treated like the black sheep of the European Union personally, and sometimes Hungary as well, unfortunately. Oh, poor me. I'm treated so badly. For trying to kill people. Also, he sounds like uh, Alex Jones, these post-nationalists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That uh, sounds kind of similar. Yeah, so. like they could be a synonym. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, what is post-Christian? I can only speak for America, obviously, but like Christianity is the biggest religion here yeah and i think in most of europe it's the biggest religion uh, it's only the biggest religion in the world yeah we only, the years are only named after one <laughs> fuck off yeah um yeah so then uh at this point tucker is gonna ask orban about um what he thinks about angela merkel in germany so it has been six years since Germany, since Angela Merkel made the decision to let many hundreds of thousands of migrants into her country. Millions, basically. Millions. Non-German speakers, Not mostly millions. Muslim. What have the effects been in Germany? You know, diplomacy is... Uh, <laughs> requires... It requires some bad behavior. But it was their decision. They took the risk, and now they got what they have deserve. That's their life. I would not like to make any categories to describe what was the outcome of their decision. I only insist on that the Hungarians has the right to make our own choice. All right, so before we go further, um, you also seem confused as to why he asked Viktor Orban about Germany as outcomes. Yes, <laughs> that was the main thing that I was going to ask about. So do you want to dunk on Germany with me? <laughs> That's yeah. all that was. Um. And they don't they don't elaborate on what they think actually happened. Later on, Tucker is going to talk about the this crime wave in Germany, and we'll address that then. But they're they're full of shit. You first became famous in the late '80s as a student, as one of the leaders against Soviet occupation of Hungary, um, and you were a hero to many in the United States. And at the time during the Cold War, we paid close attention to Hungary. I think the U.S. government was on your side. You were on the side of the U.S. government. So 30 years later, Joe Biden, while running for president last year on ABC News, described you, suggested that you were, and I'm quoting, a totalitarian thug. You see what's happening in everything from Belarus to Poland to, uh, to uh, Hungary and the rise of totalitarian regimes in the world. And as well as this president embraces all the thugs in the world. Is that bewildering for you to see the change? And how do you respond to that characterization? So first of all, the reaction of that kind of opinion here in Hungary is always not very polite, but we think, who is that guy to say that? Then we say, okay, he is the president of the United States, so we should take it seriously. Uh, so, but, but anyway, somebody who does not speak our language has a very limited knowledge on Hungary, even in the recent uh, several decades of our life, uh, don't understanding us, obviously. Having an opinion like that 
You know, it's by itself, it's a, it's a personal insult for all the Hungarians. But because he is the president of the United States, we have to be very modest. We have to be very respectful. And we have to make a lot of things to clarify that what he is doing is rather a fake. Uh, I tr we try to do that in a polite way because we respect the Americans. We respect the American democracy, American culture. So we would not like to destroy our relationship because the bilateral relationship with the Americans is basically very good. We are cooperating well on the, on the field of defense as, as NATO allies. Economic cooperation is excellent. You are a big investor here. Trade is going very well. Your businessman is uh, finding a lot of possibilities here. So everything is fine except the politics when the liberals are in government <laughs> in Washington. That's the problem. So we have to manage that because the, the American-Hungarian good relationship is a value, even if the Americans don't perceive today it as it was previously. So we have to save what we can save out of it. Joe Biden isn't just pulling that out of his ass. Like, it's not like he's just making shit up. And... What does speaking your language have to do with you being a totalitarian? It's 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 a behavior, not a cultural thing you pick up on if you spend enough time in Budapest. Yeah, he. It's really easy to see, actually. He he's fixated on the language. He's going to bring that up a lot. Like this is our language, or the outsiders they don't speak our language. Like, and that's like there, there's a bit of that here too. When, one time when I worked at a grocery store, there was somebody like at my lane when um at my checkout lane. She's on the phone speaking to, I assume, a family member in a language. I don't know what it was. And then this this hick-ass, meth-looking dude behind her is like, this is America, speak English. And I just, Oh, like, wow, that's like beyond parody. Yeah, and I just like, I, I've never understood that. Like, I, I think languages are cool. I'd be excited to learn another one, you know? Yeah, and like, why does her speaking a different language affect you in any way? It it kind of goes back to like it. Th th there is like so social psychology research out there that like conservatives have a higher, on average, have a higher threat salience. I I almost wonder if it comes from that. Like, but I, I don't know what they're saying. They could be plotting against me. <laughs> Absolutely, I I believe that a hundred percent. In in this next clip, uh, Orban's going to talk about why all the haters are just jealous of, jealous of his success. <sighs> But it's a little strange. I, I don't think Joe Biden has ever referred to Xi Jinping, for example, who has murdered many of his political opponents, famously, uh, as an, a totalitarian thug. Why would he single you? And not just you, by the way, the, the Polish government as well. The problem is the success. Before, before Orban continues with his answer, I just want to say um, Biden has said that Xi Jinping, quote, does not have a democratic bone in his body. And when asked about his relationship with Xi, Biden's had this to say. This is a battle between the utility of democracies in the 21st century and autocracies. We've got to prove that democracy works. So he, he didn't use the word totalitarian thug, but he, he called Xi Jinping an authoritarian pretty explicitly. And so, so everything is just like vaguely gesturing at imagined villains? That's yeah. okay. Yeah. And, All right. And also the funnier part is that Victor Orban censored this question um, because he has a positive relationship with Xi, and so when uh, when the transcript of this of this interview went out to Hungarian journalists, Orban had that question censored. 
a sign of good things. So, uh, Tucker, I can say whatever I want. It's fine with his hero censoring him. <laughs> that was very funny to me. So it's a real challenge for the liberal thinkers that what is going on in Central Europe, Poland and in Hungary as well, in Hungary more outspoken probably, speaking probably too much anyway, uh, on our intentions. Uh, so, so what is going on here is building up a society which is very successful economically, politically, culturally, even in demography, we have some success, family policy. So what you can see here could be described as a success story. But the fundamentals of this success are totally different than it is wished uh, and run and created by, the, by many other Western countries. Uh, so the, the Western liberals cannot accept that inside the Western civilization, there is a conservative national alternative which is more successful at, at the everyday life, at the level of the, than the liberal ones. That's the reason why they criticize us. They are fighting for themselves, not against us. But we are an example that somebody or a country which is based on traditional values, on national identity, uh, based on uh, tradition of Christianity, could be successful or sometimes even more successful than a leftist liberal government. Okay, so I have defined success as the expansion of my own personal and political power at the expense of all of the people who live in my country. And by that metric, my country is more successful than any other country in the world. Of course I'm a success. Look how rich I am. <laughs> it's, that is the pettiest shit. Like, they're just hating because I'm so successful. All these people are the same. Yeah. They're all just narcissistic children. But it works. He's in power. And he's on Tucker. Yeah. Yep. It... Some, somehow narcissistic children, uh, a lot of them got an, exor an exorbitant amount of power in the world. <sighs> uh, Seriously. It, being immune to shame can get you a long way. It sure can. It's interesting as an American to see this. So the, the American media, the Biden administration, the State Department is opposed to you because they say that you're a totalitarian thug. Your opponents are a coalition of former communists and anti-Semites. Is it strange to see the American left rooting for a coalition that includes anti-Semites? Yeah, I, 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 let's say if you would have asked me several years ago whether could it happen that the ex-communist political forces and the anti-Semite right is forming a coalition and running together at the election against a pro-Israeli and pro-American, pro-NATO, Western-oriented government as we have, as we are, I, my answer would have been, no, it's impossible. But now the international community is accepted. So I understand that here in Hungary, the political parties would like to get the power as soon as they can. Therefore, they try to make a, a, a broad coalition against the ruling government. Okay. But to be accepted that, you know, by the international community so easily, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. Uh, especially the behavior of America is totally new, new experience for me. His political opposition is made up. So talking about how bad his political opposition is to make him look good is meaningless. How can you possibly support uh, a party that includes anti-Semites? 
Mr. I've had Marjorie Taylor Greene on my show twice. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and there th- there is okay. So a lot of the other parties in Hungary have formed a coalition against the Orban government. Um, so the, in the upcoming election, Orban is facing like the closest thing to a real challenge he's had in like a decade. Okay. Um, the smart money is still in Orban winning because he controls the electoral mechanisms. Right. Um, but it, it it is like the closest to a chance that there's been since he's been in power. Um, okay. The uh, and one of those opposition parties, I believe it's called like the the Jocko Party or it's something like that. Um, they they do have some some pretty virulent anti-Semites in that group. Um, so that part isn't totally made up, but... Okay, you know. and, like, if true, that's bad. But that doesn't make Viktor Orban good. No, Viktor Orban is also a raging anti-Semite. Like, that that was what Bush called him out for in 2002 that made Orban blame Bush for losing the elections. <laughs> <sighs> and, uh, while we're on the subject of anti-Semitism... Let's talk again about George Soros. Okay. So uh, we mentioned before that when, when Orban was a young college kid, or- Soros was impressed with his speech and paid his way through college. Later on in his, in his political career, Orban began to attack Soros constantly. In the run-up to the 2018 parliamentary elections, Orban blanketed the country in huge posters featuring Soros's grinning face with captions like, Don't let Soros have the last laugh. <laughs> You're the one who took his scholarship. Uh-huh. What do you mean? Because <laughs> he, 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 he blames uh, Soros's Open Society Foundation for uh, supporting the migrant surge, which is nonsense, but it's what, it's what he says. Okay. Um, and he, he put so much political pressure on the Open Society Foundation that he forced them to relocate from Hungary to Austria. Um, he, he refers to Soros as a puppet master and believes that he's pushing mass immigration on the Western world. The month after the Open Society Foundation was forced to move to Austria, Hungary's parliament passed a bill called the Stop Soros Act, a law that creates a new category of crime, promoting and supporting illegal migration, that could, in theory, be used to imprison Hungarians who provide humanitarian aid to undocumented migrants. And uh, if, if you really need proof that there's an anti-Semitic underpinning to this, Here's a quote from Orban explaining the threat that George Soros poses to Hungary. Quote, We are fighting an enemy that is different from us. Not open, but hiding. Not straightforward, but crafty. Not honest, but base. Not national, but international. Does not believe in working, but speculates with money. Does not have its own homeland, but feels it owns the whole world. So, that that's some straight anti-Semitism. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, that... That was very funny, that Tucker. How dare the Americans support this coalition against you? There are anti-Semites in there. Um, These fucking people. For real. God, I just... I'm going to go ahead and skip this next one, because Orban just talks about how he misses Trump and Netanyahu, because they're both good allies. Um, Interestingly enough, Netanyahu also uh, enlisted the help of Arthur Finkelstein to launch his political career. Hmm. Why is there always, like... A guy behind. Like, I know. There's always just some greedy motherfucker. <laughs> for real. Like Roger Stone after him. You've got an election coming up in April. Um, are you worried that there will be international interference in your election in in Hungary? That will happen. We are not. We are, we are not 
worried of that we are prepared for that uh, obviously the international left will do everything what they can do probably even more uh, to change the government here in Hungary we are aware of that and we are prepared for that how to take the fight and fight back when the president of the United States describes you as a, as a totalitarian thug which is a very serious thing to say about somebody I, I would I would note I mean that suggests that you know why wouldn't the the Biden State Department work to prevent you from being reelected I think sooner or later the Americans will realize that issues in Hungary must be decided by the Hungarians. And it's better even for the leftist liberal uh, government in the United States to have a good partner, which is a conservative Christian democratic, supported long term by the people, Hungarian people. It's better to have that than a government which is supported by America and take the position but losing after several months uh, and creating destabilization and uncertainty. So. Uh, a not loved but stable partner is better than the uncertain new one. That I hope the Americans will understand that. So America has a pretty long history of trying to fix other countries' elections. So I don't know what where this idea is coming from. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, all I hear there is like Orban knows he's talking to an American audience, and he's like, "Oh, if I can be." vaguely pro-america but i also don't like the president they don't like i just like what america can be then that that's a he's he, he's smart that's the way to approach this interview yeah um so that's all the clips i have of their interview uh and then this is how tucker th this was his outro no wonder they don't want you to hear what he says you don't have to watch your country collapse. You don't have to have leaders who hate the population or divide their own people against each other who make the country worse, who open the borders, who increase crime, who encourage people to live on the sidewalk and do drugs. If there's any lesson of talking to Viktor Orban, maybe it's that. The conversation went on for quite some time. One thing we learned, man, are the efforts to unseat him intense and stealthy. We'll have a lot more on that on Tucker Carlson Originals. We're making that documentary now. Oh, wow. people want to vote against the guy? How stealthy. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it, Tucker hates America. Yep, that, which that, we kind of knew. That's all I can take from that. <laughs> but how how can you watch this and be okay with that? Yeah, I, yeah. It's, this is this is so this this is very fucked up. Yeah. Um, especially because like I'm sure that Tucker. I mean, Tucker has a staff and he's not an idiot. I'm sure he was aware that that. Um, that Orban is an anti-Semite and was lying about the refugee stuff. He just doesn't care. He's peddling the shit that he likes about this regime. Right. Um, now that gets us into Tucker Carlson tonight. Um, I, I, I stuck mostly to the Hungary-related Hungary stories this week, though we will have a couple of diversions. But here's how Tucker opened his show on Monday. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight we're coming to you this evening from Budapest, Hungary, right over the Danube River. It's a place we're going to be telling you a lot about in coming days. If you care about Western civilization and democracy and families and the ferocious assault on all three of those things by the leaders of our global institutions, you should know what is happening here right now. But more on that to come, a lot more. Holy shit. <laughs> <sighs> I saw someone online talk about this this week, how he, Tucker in particular, talks about Western uh, values and Western society, 
but he's not actually talking about Western society. He's talking about his values and yeah. his beliefs. Yeah, just, it, just conservatism. So it it's not an attack on the country. It's an attack on his values and people who think like him. Not, it, it's just well, I, who are in a minority. <laughs> Well, the the ones who agree with me are the same people. Everybody else is fucked up. It's like, yeah. Um. So yeah, after after cucking out America there for Hungary again, uh, he's going to make a hard pivot. First night, though, we're continuing to follow the bizarre and very fast changing guidance on COVID from the White House. Remember when they told you the last administration was incompetent? We've never seen anything like this. It's beyond belief. The last administration was incompetent. Almost six hundred—is—is is it over six hundred thousand people have died in this country? I don't know where the number sits right now, but it's around six hundred thousand people. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Um, yeah, like this shit could have been over. Yeah, and like that's not to say this administration is competent. I mean, they're leagues better though. <laughs> they are leagues better, but like I—I kind of wish that they would have done a lockdown and fixed this shit, but they didn't. <laughs> Um, and we, we aren't going to talk very much about COVID in this episode. This is the only segment I'm, I cut. Okay. But I, I wanted to cut this one because um, this feels like Tucker presenting his grand unified theory of COVID bullshit. Like he, he really artfully here just ties together all the threads he's laid in the last couple of months. It was just a week ago that Rochelle Walensky of the CDC did her best to terrify all of us over the new Indian strain of COVID. Walensky described the so-called Delta variant as, quote, one of the most infectious respiratory diseases we know of and that I have seen in my 20-year career. An internal CDC document summed it up in martial terms, quote, the war has changed, wrote the CDC. In response to those horrifying developments, the administration immediately re-implemented indoor mask mandates, even for people who've been fully vaccinated. And that was enough to get even the deeply incurious American news media asking questions. Wait a second, if the vaccines work, why the masks? So they started digging and they didn't have to dig much. On Friday morning, the Washington Post ran this headline, quote, vaccinated people made up three quarters of those infected in a massive Massachusetts COVID-19 outbreak, pivotal CDC study finds, end quote. The New York Times ran a similar piece. Again, it was based on numbers from the CDC. And yet just minutes after those articles appeared, the White House panicked. A senior member of its COVID-19 response team, a man who is not a doctor, but instead a career flack called Ben Wanaka, jumped on social media to attack the media and in fact attack the administration's own scientists. Here was Wanaka's message to the New York Times on Twitter over the weekend. He wrote it in all caps as if he was shouting, quote, vaccinated people do not transmit the virus at the same rate as unvaccinated people. And if you fail to include that context, you're doing it wrong. He barked. He went on to call the Washington Post coverage of it irresponsible. And he added this quote, let's be clear. If 10 vaccinated people walk into a room full of covid, about nine of them would walk out of the room with no covid. Nine of them. But is that true? Ben Wanaka, the one who was not a doctor, but instead of flack, did not provide a citation for that statistic. And in fact, judging by the CDC's own numbers, 
it appears, appears to be wrong. In other words, it is classic misinformation, possibly Russian in origin. What the fuck? <laughs> oh, and now Tucker all of a sudden cares about the credentials of people yeah and whether or not they're doctors you've literally had grifters pretending to be doctors on your show for interviews yeah you piece of shit yeah. and notice how week after week he'll lambast the washington post and the new york times is incompetent and biased and propaganda until they publish a story that he can use and then it's oh well these are clearly authoritative sources <sighs> um and uh i agree with the assessment that those I, did, I, didn't, I didn't read the New York Times one, but at least the Washington Post piece, I think, was irresponsible. Because um, it was committing... We talked about this a bit last week, but the the uh, base rate fallacy were like... An uh, example that Tucker is going to mention is Massachusetts, where there are a lot of breakthrough infections, but that's because almost everybody is vaccinated. So, like, of course, the percentage of people who are vaccinated who get infected is going to be more, you know? Right, okay. Um, and then the... Oh, well, if the vaccine works, why the masks? Blah, blah, blah. It, um, you, we don't need to relitigate that. Listen to the last of us. We talked to Sean about Delta. Um, here we go. He's going to say some bullshit next. And yet, strangely, Ben Wanaka, who knows much less about science than, say, Alex Jones, was not banned from the Internet. He just kept tweeting. And then a few hours later, he got backup support from Rochelle Walensky herself. The vaccine works, Walensky shouted. In fact, it works so well, you may soon be forced to get it. No one knows less about science than Alex Jones. Oh, you mean world-renowned science knower Alex Jones? <laughs> oh my, I can't believe he just said that. Let's see, uh, we have such such scientific accolades as the, uh, the Gay Frogs report. Um... <laughs> Uh, uh, fish people with sad human eyes. <laughs> uh, he thinks carbon cools the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> that guy, that's who you talk to about science. Yep. Brain Flores Plus works. <laughs> science stuff, you know? And Tucker's been doing that. Like, every couple of weeks, he'll just drop an Alex Jones reference in passing. Um, I actually like I've I've done some digging because I I know that Alex plays Tucker clips on his show all the time and Tucker has appeared in Infowars um, so they they have some sort of a friendly relationship but um, I actually did a little bit of digging and I I I believe that when Tucker got his Fox show he was told he can't go on Infowars anymore so now he's like throwing a tantrum about it yeah he's just he's just being a little baby about it. <laughs> Okay. And then uh we we've long been familiar on the show with Tucker's favorite game, which is playing a playing audio of someone saying something and then just pretending they said something they didn't say. <laughs> Are you for mandating a vaccine on a federal level? Um, you know, that's something that I think the administration is looking into. It's something that I think we're, we're looking to see approval of from the vaccine. Um, overall, I think in general, I am all for um, more vaccination. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have nothing further to say on that except that we're looking into those policies. And, and quite honestly, as people are doing that locally, um, those, are, those are individual local decisions as well. So we're looking into a federal vaccine mandate. But then just minutes after she said that, Rochelle Walensky went on Twitter to take it back. Quote, 
To clarify, there will be no nationwide mandate. Hmm. I was referring to mandates by private institutions and portions of the federal government, end quote. But of course, that's not at all what she said. She said, we're looking into a federal mandate nationwide. So this probably isn't the safest thing to say, but I think a vaccine mandate would probably be good. But I also don't think there is a chance in hell that the U.S. government would pass one. Yeah, th- 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 this is something that I I go back and forth on a lot because like the the results are only a net good, right? Yeah, but like, but like the precedent of like, can we force people to get medical procedures? Yeah, is like, you know. Yeah, and I, I I still have some libertarian instincts. Like I don't fucking like seatbelts. <laughs> so. <laughs> Little known fact about me and Troy, I think once every two years or so, we get into a really big argument about seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's... And it's the most meaningless thing we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, he's going he's gonna to circle back to Ben Wanaka a little bit, who knows less about science than Alex Jones. Then on Sunday, the head of the NIH, the highly political Francis Collins, I'm sorry, this is Francis Collins, explained that those, quote, mandates by private institutions might look like this. Do you think as a public health measure, it would be good for more businesses to require vaccine credentials uh, in order to have uh, vaccinated customers? As a public health person who wants to see this pandemic end, yes, I think anything we can do uh, to encourage reluctant folks to get vaccinated because they'll want to be part of these public events, uh, that's a good thing. I'm delighted to see employers like Disney and Walmart uh, coming out and asking their staff now to be vaccinated. Um, I'm glad to see the president has said all federal employees, I oversee uh, NIH with 45,000 people, uh, need to also get vaccinated, or if they're not, uh, to get regular testing, which is inconvenient. All of those steps, I think, are in the right direction. Who is this old fool? Employers asking their employees to get vaccinated? They're not asking, they're requiring them as a condition of employment. They're forcing them. Oh, but that's not a mandate. Just get vaccinated or you can't live in the United States anymore. That's the message from the head of the NIH, who still has not explained to what extent his agency funded the development of this virus in the first place. Okay, so Tucker doesn't know what mandate means. Corporations have a lot of power in this country, but they can't just, like boot you into the ocean yeah i I haven't heard of a a corporation deporting anybody yeah no and like it's so childish what he thinks forcing someone to do something is if you want to work at a company then you have at at a company that has policies about vaccination then you have to get your vaccination otherwise free market of labor you Go find somewhere else to work that doesn't require that. You're not being forced. I um, I, I don't, I don't think I have the clip of it. But at one point, he gives advice to his audience about what to do if their employer mandates to get the vaccine. He says, uh, "Our unsolicited advice: it, don't do it. Throw a fit. Make a lot of noise. Threaten to sue. You're an American. You don't, you don't have to." Sure, that's going to be fun for a lot of managers. Yep. Yeah. I uh, and like, don't get me wrong, managers suck, but like, you should get vaccinated. <laughs> Here's one thing you should know. These restrictions do not apply to everyone. 
prominent Democrats have been exempted from them. Barack Obama, for example, just announced that he is inviting 500 people to his 60th birthday party at his $12 million spread on Martha's Vineyard, the house which, despite climate change, by the way, is right on the ocean. Pearl Jam will perform. Steven Spielberg has been invited. There will be 200 staff. Why 200? Because when you're as oppressed as Michelle Obama is, you really can't have too many servants. And she doesn't. 200 is not too many. Was it 200 or 500? Uh, 500 guests, 200 servants. Okay. Um, where's the hypocrisy? What? Uh, because everybody has to stay distant because of COVID and, and whatnot. But not not Obama. Um, he's going to talk. Obama's about- vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. I like. And this is where I mean, just from an optics standpoint, I would kind of be like, dude, don't do that. I I <laughs> I do agree, actually, but like I, he's making this a bigger thing than it yeah. is. Yeah, like I I I think it's a bad idea. I would have advised Obama not to do this, but I mean, it, Tucker is not going to shut up about this. And it, you know, you notice he threw in there the um, oh Michelle Obama, she's so oppressed. She tells us all the time. All he's talking about is a couple of weeks back, um, probably a couple of months ago now, there's that clip of Michelle, I think the view, the view it was, where she, um, she was saying that black parents worry about things like their kids getting driver's licenses because traffic stops are dangerous. Uh, and ever since that clip, Tucker is, anytime, anytime the Obama's come, he's like, oh, and Michelle Obama is the most depressed person in the country. She tells you all the time. That, that's all Which he's talking she's about. She's never said. Yeah, that's all actually. he's talking about. So where does this lead? What does civil rights mean when they're not enforced across the board? When your rights are given to you based on who you vote for, they're not really civil rights, are they? They're privileges. And that's exactly what's happening. In fact, it's happening around the world. Rights that we took for granted, that we believed we were born with in the English-speaking world, have disappeared. Okay, civil rights aren't, like, emblazoned upon us at birth we as a country decide what human rights are if we decided that water was a human right then uh we w- we could make water free you know if we decided that housing was a human right uh we could make housing free um yeah. so like virtue signaling about our right to not get vaccinated i guess as an as an unchanging variable is ridiculous yeah and what tucker believes is that rights come from god and by applying them uh unequally then democrats are trying to be god show me in the bible where it says you can have the right to refuse a vaccination yeah i've read the bible god was not huge on civil rights (laughs) (laughs) there's like some people getting stoned (laughs) yeah lots of uh slavery (laughs) um after this, Tucker talks a bit about the lockdowns in Australia being under martial law. Um, I looked into it a bit. Like the they're in uh, in Sydney, they do have like the the military helping enforce lockdown measures, which I'm not crazy about. Yeah, that seems a little scary. Um, yeah, not not a big fan of that. Um, do they like not have police? Yeah, it it, it, it seems like a pretty weird situation, honestly, uh, and like. They only have only like seventeen percent of Australians are vaccinated because their rollout has been so bad. That so, sucks. Yeah, um, but from there, Tucker is going to talk about the the Anglo sphere 
And this is a little bit dog whistly. Okay. The Anglosphere committing suicide collectively. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, Great Britain. What do they have in common? They speak the same language, they have the same culture, and all of them are allowing COVID to defeat them. In Australia, people not allowed on the beach and not allowed to ask why either. They have the same culture, do they? Well, they speak the same language. That's all that matters. And they're white. But do you live in America? <laughs> There's like nothing I have in common with a Floridian. <laughs> yeah, there there are people who in this country who speak the same language that I cannot understand. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, petty, but like he's just. All of these people are white, and just it's so. It's, tra- it's the only it's thing so, they have in common. It's so transparent. Like his, his idea about the 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 Anglosphere committing suicide is they're not allowed on the beach and they can't even ask why. <laughs> you don't have to ask why because we told you there's a coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So then uh, Tucker gets to talking about crime. Um, he says the death of George Floyd has inadvertently led to thousands more deaths because of defund the police, which we've been over. That's nonsense. Are people even actually disallowed from going on beaches? Yeah, uh, like somewhere, I'm sure. But he he, he, he said he said I believe he said in Australia, which they I I didn't specifically look into the beaches, but they might be from the way from the way it sounds. Okay, okay. Um, if they have a lockdown, I guess that would make sense that yeah. they're not allowed on public places. Yeah, um, let's see. So George Floyd's death led to thousands and more deaths because of defund the police. Um, he plays some sh- he plays some footage of a shooting in New Orleans, and and then he brings back our white genocide OG, Heather MacDonald. Oh, great. Heather MacDonald is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She joins us now. Heather, thanks so much for coming on. It's infuriating and grief-making to watch those videos because you know they didn't have to happen, those shootings. They did happen because of bad policies. And the people who made those policies will never be held to account for them and never be forced to apologize. You've covered this from a social science point of view for decades. It must enrage you to watch it. It certainly does, Tucker. We're all living through a real-time experiment testing the left's theories about crime and human nature. According to much of the media, the Democratic elite establishment, uh, crime is just a racist fiction and the criminal justice system has been designed to oppress blacks. Therefore, we can dismantle law enforcement without negative effects and will liberate blacks from racist oppression. Well, the results of this experiment have been in for a year, as you say, since the George Floyd riots. Uh, And what we've seen is the largest increase in homicide in this nation's history. Dozens of black children mowed down fatally by by drive by shootings and senior citizens thrashed, beaten mercilessly by racist, hate filled thugs. This crime wave is coming to a neighborhood near you via carjackings, uh, flash mobs and and street robberies. And if we don't completely rebut without apology the false narrative that policing is racist, civilization is going to continue to unwind right before our eyes. So this crime wave is coming to a neighborhood near you via carjackings, flash mobs, and street robberies. Tell me more about two, the two flash of those mobs. Things are crimes. <laughs> what does she mean, flash mobs? She clearly has never seen or been in a flash mob. 
I, I was in a failed attempted flash mob once, but it, was, <laughs> it wasn't good. Were you the only one who flashed? No, no. The, there were okay. So there was a very large uh, choir event in high school that, like, everyone in Southwest Michigan would go to Miller Auditorium and like learn a few songs and play it at the the evening, um, sing it at the evening. And um, there was a midday like lunch where everyone would go to the mall, and there were some people like, "Hey, we should do a flash mob," but they only got like six people in on it of the. <laughs> several hundred that were hanging out at the mall so uh they tried and failed to uh form a flash mob and it was very embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) oh that's awesome um but i the main reason i kept this in is because uh tucker has to make a stop for some uh some budapest shilling I'm not sure most Americans understand that not all cities are like that. I'm standing in a city of 1.7 million people where nothing like that ever happens, ever happens in Budapest, Hungary. Probably a lot of problems with Budapest, but there's nothing like that. Do Americans, have they come to believe that we have to live like this, that it's like mandatory for some reason? Well, we've reverted to that, absolutely. In the early 1990s, criminologists were saying for New York City that it was inevitably violent, that that is simply the American character. That was the norm, and Rudolph Giuliani and Police Commissioner William Bratton disproved it through effective law enforcement. Yeah, so uh, Americans don't have to live this way. I'm in Budapest. It's so great. <laughs> like, he, he never misses an opportunity this week to cuck out America. It's crazy. She also name-dropped uh, Giuliani there, proving tough on crime works. We talked about that in the Dan Bongino episode a bit, um, that it, during Giuliani's tenure, crime in New York did go down, but it went down in every American city. And uh, it, like when people looked at the data, all that Giuliani's policies correlated with was more like complaints and abuses by the police. Didn't seem The effects on crime were the same as in other cities that didn't implement his policies. Um, now we have one more clip from Monday. He... Uh, Heather McDonald must have put the put the fire in his belly because he's got some great replacement heat for us when he comes back from break. Oh, boy. So the Biden administration started doing all kinds of things almost immediately after Joe Biden was inaugurated in January. But the very first thing they did, the first big policy change they made and the one they've stuck to most assiduously has been to open our southern border, not simply to Latin America, but to the world. Now, why did they do that? Why is that the one thing they did immediately and have kept doing? Well, of course, because they want to change who lives in this country. And they're doing that to undermine democracy itself. When you change who votes, you change the outcome of elections. And they believe by opening the border, they can ensure permanent control of our political system by the Democratic Party for generations. That's not a conspiracy theory. They say it out loud all the time and attack you if you note it. Dick Durbin, who's a senator purportedly from Illinois, just said it out loud on the floor of the Senate a few days ago. Last week, the New York Times published an op-ed, and we're giving the title here directly, quote, there is no good reason you should have to be a citizen to vote. In other words, the millions coming in should be able to choose your government. The author of that piece argues that actually, non-citizens contribute just as much to this country as people who are born here, and they should be allowed to pick your government. That doesn't scare you, nothing will. Um, they're right. Uh, people, who, people who live here deserve a voice in how they're governed. 
I don't care if they were born here or not. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it, if you pay taxes, then you're in, you know? Yeah. Um, that, uh, <laughs> he's also ascribing a lot of weight to the New York, to a New York Times opinion piece there. Yeah. Um, and what he mentioned with Dick Durbin saying it on the Senate floor, uh, Dick Durbin was talking about passing the Dream Act. Um, okay. Which would create a path of citizenship for people who were brought here as children. Uh, so that that's all he's trying to fearmonger about there. And he can't be specific about it because the Dream Act is actually popular. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, uh, we I, I glossed over it. Um, our southern border is not open to the whole world because it we our southern border doesn't border the whole world. Yeah, he, He's acting like... <laughs> he never has anything to say about the northern border. Weird. Yeah, weird. How that, how that happens. But like just the way he said it, like they're trying to open the southern border to the whole world. It's like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going to like come in through Mexico? That's yeah, the only a, way a, in. A thing that doesn't happen? <laughs> I'm... I'm pretty sure that every American birth canal actually runs through Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he, he's, he's going to circle back here to King Barack. No one's more oppressed than Michelle Obama. She's told you that many times. She can barely go outside. But when she's at home, she goes big. For she and her husband, the king of the Democratic Party, he's turning 60 so naturally, they're celebrating on Martha's Vineyard with 200 servants. Will there be elephants? Will be brought in on a litter? And what will Rochelle Walensky have to say about it? Talk about a super spreader effect. So, Tyler, T- Tucker can't handle the story alone. He needs help. <laughs> and I, uh, in, in unrelated news, I taught I taught a putty tat. <laughs> and I did because Mark Stein is here. Oh, no. We don't have the answers, but we believe Mark Stein might. He's our high society correspondent. Needless to say, he's Bart, based in Martha's Vineyard. He joins us tonight. So do you think 200 servants seems like a lot, even for Barack Obama? What do you think they'll be doing? Well, actually, in fairness, uh, I think all these underbutlers and deputy footmen are actually going to be the only diversity because the 500 guests seem to be the same guests who go to every... We're basically back to medieval Europe, where it's the same 500 people who go to all the parties. Uh, As you know, uh, Barack Obama's got Oprah and George Clooney, just as Oprah and George Clooney went to Harry and Meghan's wedding, even though they'd never met either of them. I mean, you have to feel sorry for George and Oprah, just going to the parties of people you don't know is a pretty sad and <laughs> miserable uh, existence. But I- so, Oprah interviewed them. Oh, yeah. What does he mean she doesn't know them? <laughs> Maybe at the time? I don't know. Um, Maybe. Anyway, um, what? <laughs> yeah, uh, I- I've been to parties of people I don't know, and I had a great time. Um <laughs> But just uh, just a fun tie-in to our broader theme here. Um, Victor Orban has accused George Clooney of being an agent of George Soros. <laughs> just because his name's George? Uh, there's a, what, was there a connection? Uh, George Clooney said some uh, criticized Orban's regime, and then somebody dug up a picture from years ago of George Clooney with uh, with um, George Soros's son. Okay. And so Orban made a big deal about that. It's almost like powerful rich people hang out together. Yeah, it, yeah. It, like the same 500 people go to all the parties. <laughs> and like, 
No one doesn't know George Clooney. Even if you haven't met him, yeah. he's George Clooney. Yeah. Did you, did you he, he like has a satellite to spy on South African warlords? George Clooney? Yeah. What? Yeah, it's cool as <laughs> shit. Like George Clooney is actually pretty dope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have to I have to say that when you look at this, 500 guests, uh 200 fawning uh, footmen and underbutlers, uh, what's interesting to me is the way people are actually perfectly happy with this. You've been talking about citizenship yeah. on this show, but actually uh, a disturbing number of people are quite happy to be subjects. They say, oh, yes, I couldn't go to That's Granny's right. 90th birthday, but it's perfectly fine uh, for Barack Obama to have 500 people because our rulers are, are, are so much better than us. The, the last 18 months has actually clarified this. Uh, the governor of California, at the French Laundry. Oh, well, that's different. He's a great man. Obama is a great man. Flying George Clooney and Oprah in, that's appropriate. Oh, uh, I'm just going to put my mask back on and go back in the house for another 18 months. God, that's the saddest observation. I've heard. The, the, the fierce egalitarian spirit of American society dying, and that's our fault. I agree with you completely. Mm. Mark Stein, sometimes yeah. it takes a foreign eye to see the truth about our country. <laughs> Great to see you. Or sometimes you have to be in Budapest to see America clearly. I envy you that, Tucker. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Safe, clean Budapest. The great Mark Stein. Mm -hmm. No one wears masks in their houses. No, no. He's going to point that out. And, like, as Troy said, um, I kind of agree that this is optically bad and i wish that obama wasn't having a 500 guest party yeah it's... it it looks shitty I, I i came off a little blase but once you said that i'm like yeah yeah this looks shitty it's it's kind of like i'm rich so i get to do whatever i want yeah, like and maybe it's not fair but you are who you are you're a controversial former president you've got to be careful <laughs> yeah yeah um and then uh to close out on monday he um he he talks about Andrew Cuomo. He talks about Cuomo a lot this week. I caught basically none of it because I I don't care what Tucker has to say about Andrew Cuomo. Um, but I did cut this one bit just because it's super fucking weird. So I, I hate to borrow the the words of the Me Too movement, but what this establishes is a pattern over time of hostile behavior, of sexually aggressive behavior, and it's happening in the office of one of the most liberal governors in America. Now, ask any woman who's dated across the aisle and she'll tell you that liberal men are horrible to date. They mistreat women. I mean, that's just that's just true. They're bad boyfriends um, across the board. But why didn't so I'm not surprised that he did this. But why did nobody in the office report this until now? Why did it take years to find this out? Citation needed. Ask any woman who's dated across the aisle. Because all women are by default conservative, <laughs> so they have to choose. Half the country votes Democrat, so just half of the men in the world are abusive. In the country. <laughs> okay, like what the hell was that? It was so weird. <laughs> and also, Tucker, I believe you are sitting in the chair of a man who was not a liberal. <laughs> Who was also a chronic sexual harasser. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess nowadays Bill O'Reilly might be a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. Um, 
And then this is how Tucker ends on Monday. So we came to Hungary at the beginning of this weekend because there is a fascinating experiment going on right now in the Central European country. What if you organized a country around the people who live there, defending them, making their lives better, promoting families, encouraging people to get married, making it easier for them to have children? What would happen if you did that? Virtually no other country in the world is doing that. The government of Hungary is, and of course the people who run our country hate them for it. We thought it'd be worth talking to the man who's doing that, Victor Orban. We'll be speaking to him at some length. We'll bring that to you later in the week. In the meantime, we'll be back tomorrow, 8 p.m. We'll see you then. Yes, so Tucker we- wants to protect people who live in the country and make it easier for people to have kids. So he wants, like, welfare and stuff so that parents can afford daycare. And he wants yeah, affordable housing and health care. I bet he's all about the child tax credit. Yeah. <laughs> fucking prick <laughs> um so that, what if we did help the people who live here tucker <laughs> uh jesus <laughs> so that gets us to tuesday and uh here's how he opens that show good evening and welcome to tucker carlson tonight all of a sudden it's pretty easy for people to move around the world and all of a sudden they are Poor people moving from poor countries across the globe into rich countries. Why wouldn't they? And again, that's what's happening. Back in 2015, more than a million illegal migrants flooded into Europe, and many of them came to Hungary, where we are right now. It was a crisis for the continent, but alone in Europe, Hungary figured out how to solve that problem in a way that we have not figured out here in the United States. How did Hungary do that? How did it preserve its borders and its society? What can we learn from that? Today we took a trip to find out. We'll show you what we found in just a minute. So Tucker has gone to the border of uh, between Hungary and Serbia. Um, he, he's gonna, he's going to be talking about that trip later on. Is uh, good. Uh, some, he's got some good ideas for things we could try here, like uh, starvation. Millions of illegal migrants, just like. I know we talk about this a lot, but just, like, calling people illegal pisses me off. Yeah, yeah, it's it's gross. And, like, countries were welcoming them in, like Germany, like yeah. we talked about earlier. Like, it's not like they're illegal. Um, also, laws aren't set in stone, so, like, we could make <laughs> them legal. Yeah, like with the DREAM Act. <laughs> yeah. We won't talk about that, though. Um. So he, he's going to circle back to the border, but first he wants to pretend that he doesn't understand how presidential appointments work. But first tonight, good evening, welcome to Chuck Carlson tonight. On New Year's Day of this year, Rochelle Walensky was just a college professor in Massachusetts. You almost certainly never heard of her. You definitely didn't vote for her at any point because Walensky had never run for office. As of January 1st, her political power was precisely the same as yours and everyone else's in the supposedly self-governing republic. Rochelle Walensky had one vote out of a nation of 320 million people. And then, just a few weeks later, everything changed for her and for the rest of us. Joe Biden appointed Walensky to run the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Yep, that's how... The presidency works. They appoint people to... I don't know if that's a cabinet position, but like... Like, why is he acting like this is a scandal? <laughs> yeah, like, where were you when Trump was appointing hundreds of judges and appointing EPA chiefs and CDC chiefs yeah. and 
FBI chiefs and attorney generals and yeah, it's, just, it's just what happened. Well, they like, were on my side, so it wasn't a problem then. My audience knows so little about civics that I can pretend this is a scandal. <laughs> That's all he's doing. True. <laughs> so then, uh, it, what, what do you think he's mad about? He's mad at Rochelle Walensky about. Okay, I, I think she is CDC head or something. Yes. So um, she said something about COVID. Yeah, you're 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 in the right ballpark. Um, she said something about wearing masks even if you're vaccinated. That's my. It was a great guess, but no. Oh, oh. At the time, it did not seem like a huge deal. The CDC is not a legislative body; it's a public health bureau. It was originally designed to fight malaria, and it did a good job. The CDC now gathers information about diseases and then releases guidance about those diseases to the public. That's what it does. The CDC does not make laws in this country. It's not allowed to. Under the U.S. Constitution, making laws is the exclusive role of the Congress. You vote for your senators and your congressmen, and they decide what the rules are. That's known as representative democracy. It's been our system for nearly 250 years. But apparently, it's now over. Rochelle Walensky now makes our laws. Walensky announced today that she has decided to nationalize America's rental properties, millions and millions of them from Maine to California. Tenants are no longer required to pay their rent. Property owners cannot evict them under any circumstances. Making someone pay to live on your property is now a federal crime. Try it and you can wind up in prison with hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. So he's mad about the eviction moratorium. What does that have to do with the CDC? Because, uh, okay, so the old moratorium expired. Yes, and then but, Democrats let it expire, those assholes. Yep, because they're, they're great. Um, and then Biden was trying to find a way to do it legally, and they ended up doing it through, like, CDC guidelines. Huh. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it, it's been kind of... And, like... There's a judge who rejected this, and then a judge let it stay. And, like, at the time of this recording, like, by the time we're done, the situation with it might be different. I don't know. Um, yeah. But it, it's been kind of a mess. But th- this is such a... I was surprised that Tucker is de- dedicating a segment on his show to being mad about this, because, like, it's such an obviously good thing for people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we can't have people living in houses if, unless they're paying rent, Troy. Like, he, he was just talking about how how great it was that in Hungary they're making it easier for people to have families and raise children. You know what makes it really hard to raise kids? Being fucking homeless. Yup. It's insane. He was just talking about how much he wanted to help people. <laughs> I thought I thought we had an ally here. What happened? But you gotta give it to him, Tyler. The Democrats, they're a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, yeah. At the same time, you should know, property owners will still be required to pay the banks that hold their mortgages. There is no moratorium on mortgages. Why? The banks are huge Democratic donors, and they're getting the treatment that they paid for. Sandy Cortez and the squad are not calling for the banks to do their part, so they're not. It's property owners who will suffer, many of the members of the rapidly disappearing American middle class. Sandy Cortez. Yeah, he he calls her that because uh, apparently in high school her her she went by Sandy as a nickname. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's, it's stupid.
got him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What, oh man, I don't know why he thinks that's such a burden. <laughs> Destroyed her, Tucker. Oh shit. Like in middle school, I went by Troy the boy toy. So <laughs> Let's hope Tucker never finds out about that one. <laughs> Gonna be shook. Did I have nicknames? I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I called you the Lonely Seed. <laughs> All right, so Troy remembers my nicknames better than I do, apparently. <laughs> um, so as far as uh, as far as Democrats want to protect the want to protect the banks because they're big Democratic donors, I actually found a breakdown of can- campaign donations by commercial banks. Um, it's not as cut and dry as Tucker is suggesting. Overall, forty eight percent of banks' donations to political campaigns go to Democrats. Well, 52% go to Republicans. So as a net share, more goes to Republicans. Yeah. Um, Big banks don't care which party you're on. They just want you to pass tax cuts for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, on the whole, Republicans are the, larger, are the larger recipient of bank donations, but the three largest banks in the country, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Bank of America, are pretty heavily skewed toward donating to Democrats. Um, and... In the 2020 election, Joe Biden did get quite a bit more money from the banks than Donald Trump did. However, in that same election year, congressional, congressional Republicans received more money from commercial banks than did congressional Democrats. So the, the idea that this is just a Democrats award their donors thing is nonsense. Um, if it were true that the Dems were bending over backwards for commercial banks, there probably wouldn't be an eviction moratorium at all. Yep. Um, I'm shocked the eviction moratorium didn't just expire and they didn't do anything about it i fully expected that to happen i mean they gave doing nothing their best shot <laughs> put a non stefford in <laughs> entirely it's hard to overstate how how big of a change this is it's hard to overstate what a momentous change this is it means among other things that private property no longer exists in the united states you thought you owned your home not anymore. Rochelle Walensky does. She'll decide who can live there, under what circumstances, and for how long. Is this a good idea? Of course not. It's totalitarian. But there's an even more pressing question at the center of this, a principle, a principle that defines what kind of country this is and what kind of country it will be going forward. And the question is this, where did Rochelle Walensky get the power to do this, to suspend private property rights in America? And the answer is, she simply asserted the power. Walensky claimed she had the authority and no one stopped her from exercising it. This morning she signed an official looking order declaring that her opinion is now the law. And so it is the law. But wait, you say, that doesn't seem very American. Shouldn't somebody vote on this? If we're going to continue to pretend this is a democracy, and you hear that on television constantly, then shouldn't our elected lawmakers make the laws? No, and they're not going to. Nancy Pelosi has refused to call a vote on the matter, and she runs the Congress. She decides. Meanwhile, most Republicans haven't said a word about it. And that means that an unelected college professor you'd never heard of six months ago is now in charge of your country. What about all the uh, Supreme Court justices that we didn't vote on, Tucker? How do you feel about that? <laughs> hey, didn't seem to have an issue. <laughs> but yeah, the... Uh, I don't know if you got the memo, Tyler. There is no more private property in the United States. No one called me? I'm the socialist podcast boy. <laughs> and no one told me we abolished private property? <laughs> yeah, it's, I feel like that should have been better publicized. Yeah. Like, 
I mean, I, I really thought I owned my home. I, <laughs> oh, man. I mean, a bank owns it, but... <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> you have a contract that will allow you to assume ownership. At some point in the future, assuming nothing happens with your employment or your yeah. wife's employment. Yeah, so... It, as, as what far... a good system. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> As far as Tucker freaking out about about this being such a monumental change, uh, this is actually narrower than the previous moratorium, so this is only effective in areas that are being hit hard by the Delta variant. Uh, in localities with high infection rates, ev- evictions can contribute to the spread of the virus because it necessi- necessitates the movement of people. Uh, so th- th- this has been targeted in areas, areas of the country currently experiencing high infection rates. Still, not everyone in those areas is necessarily protected by the moratorium. The CDC document detailing this order lists six criteria that tenants have to meet in order, in order to qualify as a covered person under the moratorium. Those criteria are 1. The individual has used best efforts to obtain all available governmental assistance for rent or housing. 2. The individual either earned no more than $99,000 in calendar year 2020, or expects to earn no more than $99,000 in annual income for calendar year 2021. 3. The individual is unable to pay the full rent or make a full housing payment due to substantial loss of household income, loss of compensable hours of work for wages, a layoff, or extraordinary out-of-pocket medical expenses. 4. The individual is is using best efforts to make timely partial rent payments that are as close to the full rent payment as the individual's circumstances may permit taking into account other non-discretionary expenses. 5. Eviction will, li- eviction will likely render the individual homeless or force the individual to move into, move into and reside in close quarters in a new congregate or shared living setting because the individual has no other available housing options. And 6. The individual resides in the U.S. in a county experiencing substantial or high rates of community transmission levels of SARS-CoV-2 as defined by the CDC. So, that that that's... A decent amount of narrowing criteria there for who this, yeah. who this covers. Um, Tucker is so worried about the landlords, but they aren't necessarily left out to dry either. They're fucking landlords. They're going to be fine. Yeah. Well, and he he talks about he talk how most of them are me- members of the crumbling middle class. We do you remember landlords are the middle <laughs> class now? Well, if you remember way back in our the first tragedy of the Bowtie episode, we learned that Tucker thinks the middle class is people making fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. So. Which is no, <laughs> nope. Um, if you go to the website for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, there is a mortgage and housing assistance section with three subcategories listed: help for home, help for homeowners, help for renters, and help for landlords. If you click on help for landlords, it lists helpful options for landlords whose income has been impacted by the pandemic, including applying for rental assistance to recover back rent or forbearance to pause mortgage payments. Which is exactly what Tucker was just complaining about. Um, so from there, he from here he brings on this dum dum named Charlie Hurd. Uh, Charlie is the opinion editor for the Washington Examiner, which is a garbage paper. And um, <laughs> th- th- this guy is very dumb. <laughs> uh, here's the first. Here's the first thing he brings to the table. And by the way, this is far more than, although the attack, the assault on private property is probably the most appalling, disgusting part of all this, but this is more than just that. This is also an attack on the concept of contracts. And contracts and private property, which of course we inherited from Western civilization, 
It is why America is the richest, most powerful country on earth. It is why everyone in the world wants to come here is because private property and contracts are tantamount for us. And this is an assault on that because these people, these Democrats who control everything, want to turn us into China. Because in China, you don't have private property. And anybody who's ever tried to do business, you know, ask any textile worker, ask any uh, furniture maker what it's like to, to try to enforce a contract in China, and they'll start laughing because contracts don't exist in China. But that's what these people want to turn America into. So we're getting a long list. You've got to ask a woman who's dated across the aisle what it's like to date a liberal man. <laughs> We've got to ask a furniture maker what it's like to try and enforce contracts in China. <laughs> So I don't know anything about contracts in China, but I don't understand how an eviction moratorium is an attack on contracts. Like, the contracts resume after the moratorium ends. Yeah, the, the, the definition of moratorium. <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not an eviction void. Yeah. It um, sure would be nice if we uh, abolished um, evictions. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and landlords. It, it would be nice if, like, housing was the right, because, yeah. you know, it's, like, fundamental to human flourishing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, also, we have more empty houses than homeless people, so, like, just uh, yeah. fix it. Yeah. It'd be really easy. So, if you're distressed about housing prices, and we've been on this for five years, housing prices are completely out of control, and they're highest in the places controlled by the most left-wing members of the Democratic Party, by the way, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. There are a lot of things you could do about that. You could curb (laughs) foreign investment in our residential housing markets, which they would never even consider. Why should Chinese investors own huge parts of Manhattan and San Francisco? How does that help Americans? It doesn't. But instead, they're putting all the pressure on middle-class Americans. You're you're renting your basement apartment to someone, and all of a sudden you have to give it away for free because Rochelle Walensky says so? Like, What? Because they'll die if you don't. And also, uh, the CDC's order defines, it applies to residential property, where residential property is defined as any property leased for residential purposes, including any house, building, mobile home, or land in a mobile home park, or similar dwelling leased for residential purposes, but shall not include any hotel, motel, or other guest house rented to a temporary guest or seasonal tenant as defined under the laws of the state, Territorial, tribe, or local jurisdiction. So it doesn't even protect the thing he cited as an yeah, example. So you, you can still evict somebody from your basement apartment if you're so inclined to be an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's like I. It, if if, I mean, if if they're like cooking a meth lab in your basement or something, you got to get rid of those. But yeah, but I think that's a pretty fringe case. Yeah. Or you got to get cut in on that on that revenue. Much better plan. Um, but. <laughs> That thing about foreign investment uh, hit my ear. Hit my ear weird, though. So I looked into that a little bit. Tucker seems to think that housing costs in this country are too high because of foreign buyers purchasing real estate in American cities. What? <laughs> I, I looked into this a little bit, and he, okay, he's he's wrong, but he's not like a hundred percent wrong. Okay. Um, th- th- there was a 2020 study that looked at U.S. zip codes with high foreign-born Chinese populations. And found that housing prices in those zip codes rose by about 8%. Um, experts on housing policy tend to treat this as a pretty minor cause of the housing affordability issue, though. Generally, they'll assign more blame to single-family zoning restrictions in areas where new, where new housing could be built. 
which keeps the housing supply artificially short and therefore drives up costs. So this is, uh, it, if you're going to build housing here, you can only build single-family dwellings. Okay. Um, it, like, most cities have a lot of these ordinances. Like, I think in Seattle, it's like 80% of the land is under single-family zoning. Okay. Um, I and, didn't even realize that. That's so dumb. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and like, not only does that keep housing supply artificially low, because um, you're necessarily building less than the, the area might need. Yeah. But um, it also, like, because single-family dwellings are, are more expensive than, say, uh, a duplex or an apartment. The prices go up. Yeah, and it, al- it also, like, freezes uh, lower-income people out of higher-opportunity neighborhoods. Um, yep. The, w- one, of my f- one of my favorite uh, publications to follow, they have a YouTube channel, too. It's called Strong Towns. Watched a video the other day about how suburbs are basically like a Ponzi scheme. It was super interesting. Oh, I, I have a. There's another uh, channel that talks about suburbs a lot. I'll have to show you. Sweet, it's very cool. It's uh-huh. called Echo Gecko. If anyone is listening who's interested, okay, that's a um, fun name. Yeah, it's it's. He has a series called like How the Burbs Are Killing Us or something. Um, it very interesting, very cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that. So housing experts tend to look at like single-family zoning restrictions as a bigger cause for uh, inflated housing prices, and there is there are provisions in the infrastructure bill in the Congress right now to address that, uh, which a couple of weeks ago Tucker lost his shit over, saying that uh, Biden wanted to abolish the suburbs. So he uh, suburbs suck. He doesn't seem that invested in fixing this issue. Also, foreign investment in the housing market is currently at a record low. <laughs> According to a study in the net by the National Association of National Associate National Association of Realtors, for the twelfth month period ending in March twenty twenty one, the dollar volume of existing home purchases by foreign buyers fell twenty seven percent, while the number of homes bought by foreigners in total fell thirty one percent. So Tucker should take some solace in the fact that this issue seems to be resolving itself. <laughs> um, and also, most foreign buyers of U.S. real estate are not Chinese nationals but Canadians. Which I somehow doubt Tucker was going to be that freaked out about. <laughs> <laughs> but in in this next clip, I'm so excited for this. Charlie has a plan to get back at the Chinese. Yeah, and and, and of course, all of this happens at a moment when uh, we, as a government, we as a country, should be suing China for their involvement in the pandemic, and and we could hold as collateral right. half of Manhattan, which China, the Chinese business owners and and uh, China, the Chinese government owns, and use that as collateral, sell all of it, and and pay everybody that has paid a grievous price in this pandemic. But here's the thing, and and this is the most important part of what you just uh, talked about, and that is that the banks are still going to get their cut. Did you follow that plan? He wants to take houses back from Chinese people and then he wants to take the real estate in Manhattan that China that Chinese national zone and use it as collateral for a lawsuit against China for their role in the coronavirus pandemic. Okay, I missed a lot of that then. <laughs> um what happened to private property? This is a foolproof plan, I think. I don't see any issues here. <laughs> Dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. What, is the, what does that solve? <laughs> exactly. We're gonna sue we're gonna sue you for your role in the pandemic. How do you assess punitive damages there? And like and Well like they're not responsible, first of all. So <laughs> if they was taken to court nothing would happen. And and for collateral we're gonna keep the houses you bought in Manhattan. I don't 
Okay. Which you bought with your money in the free marketplace <laughs> of real estate. Um, um, but since you're not white, you're not entitled to the things that you buy. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's also an ex- seriously ridiculous shit. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like Charlie Heard is a fucking idiot. Yeah. Um, it, it's a bit of an exaggeration to say that China owns half of Manhattan, but Chinese investors did buy up a lot of property in New York a few years back. Um, in 2015 and 2016, Chinese buyers poured over $14 billion into New York's housing market. Uh, that changed drastically in late 2016, though, when China made this made the decision to reel in its overseas investments. The The reasons why the Chinese government kind of tightened tighten the screws on these buyers in the housing market are a little bit complicated. And this episode is long enough as it is, but I'll link some stuff for those who are curious. Um, but the... The short version is, though, Chinese investment in New York real estate has cratered, and a lot of those properties have already been returned to American owners. Uh, so Charlie is also upset about a problem that has sold itself. Okay, cool. So there's no problems in America. That's the conclusion here? <laughs> Tucker, you can retire. It's, it's, all, it's all better now. <laughs> um, and then in this one, Charlie continues to be just profoundly stupid. You know who's not? You know whose contracts are not being shredded by the by the CDC right now? Uh, it's the contracts that uh, require people to pay massive amounts of money to their electric company and to their oil and gas company. And right. by the way, to Netflix, your Netflix contract didn't get shredded because you know why? Because Barack Obama needs to get his $50 million contract paid exactly. out from Netflix. That's why they're going after uh, people, you know, private owners who own property and not after the big guys. Because, by the way, you're hopeless if you don't have an army of lobbyists in Washington with Democrats in control. That's totally right. Citibank is fine. They paid paid the protection money that they needed to pay. By the way, why am I paying my taxes? Why is the contract between me and the IRS, you and the IRS, the rest of us and the IRS, still valid? Because they have the guns, that's why. Charlie Hurd, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Tucker. Netflix doesn't have a contract. You just pay if you want, and then if you don't want to pay anymore, you stop paying. That's that. That's not a contract. Yeah, that. The the, the re and then like it's the same as like buying a can of beans. If you want to continue having beans, you buy the can, and if you don't need beans anymore, you stop buying it. And then, How, that's not a contract. Is that a contract, Charlie? <laughs> And even beyond that misunderstanding, he is alleging that the the reason they didn't cancel your your Netflix contract is because Obama is getting paid by Netflix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's that about? Okay, yeah, it's it's very silly. Um, anyway, <laughs> so then uh, that's the end of Charlie Heard. But I sincerely hope he comes back. <laughs> And spout some crazy bullshit, yeah. And then uh, at this point, Tucker's got to go back. Got to go. Tucker's got to circle back to that sweet immigration tree. Oh boy, tree. Welcome back from Budapest. Huge waves of human migration really are the biggest story of the age we're living in, and they will certainly define the future. They've accelerated for a couple of reasons. One, it's very easy to travel from one end of the globe to another, easier than it's ever been in human history, and cheaper. But for another, a lot of the world is getting less stable. And in part, that's the fault 
of the West. Ideologues in this country, some of whom now work at the Biden State Department, decided to overthrow the government of Iraq. That caused a domino effect of instability throughout the region and massive waves of human migration. Hillary Clinton decided that for some reason we had to kill the leader of Libya that started a civil war in that country and again, more migration. And then for the last 15 years, again, ideologues in Washington have pushed more war in Syria. So all of that had effects. One of those effects back in 2015 was the movement of more than a million people from the Middle East and North Africa, and in some cases, Sub-Saharan Africa, into Europe. Are you going to pretend that we that we have a responsibility? Okay, are you going to pretend that you think we have a responsibility to those people and then turn around and say we shouldn't let any of them come here as refugees? Yeah. You yeah. piece of shit. Like, how fucked up is that? He acknowledges that, like... A lot of these disastrous people are fleeing are our fault. And he's like, nope, <laughs> can't come here. What a Not dick. our problem. Actually, it kind of is our problem, yeah, you, you, Tucker. You just kind of laid it out, my man. Uh, and then uh, this is where he gets back to the Germany situation. Now, Europe is controlled by the EU, which is effectively controlled by Germany. No one says it out loud, but in really, it's the German Empire. And at the time, it was run what? by the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel. And she decided to keep the doors open. She said that accepting more than a million migrants in her, her country was not a big deal at all. Quote, Germany is a strong country. We will manage. Well, of course, she was completely wrong. That decision changed the nature of Germany forever, caused a massive crime spike. Yes, that's true and proven. And in general, disrupted the entire region. It's not clear who exactly benefited from that, even the migrants themselves. Certainly the countries they came from were weaker as a result. So I don't know about that crime claim but i imagine if you bring a million more people into your country that there will be more crime because there's more people in your country yeah 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 uh <laughs> overall crime did rise by, by about 10 percent in germany in 2015 and 16 um but by 2018 crime in germany had fallen to its lowest level since 1992 wow <laughs> Almost like it's not a big deal. He's still talking about the 2015 numbers then. Yep, he sure is. Yeah. It's, um, it's six years later. <laughs> the world has moved on, well, Tucker. But, but the new numbers don't work for me, Tyler. So. <sighs> okay. All right. Okay. Uh, the, there has been an increase in migrant crime because there was a large increase in the number of migrants. Um, it's, Shocker. Yeah, it's kind of like the same thing with the base rate fallacy with the with the um, COVID infection rates in Minnesota. Yeah, like if you have more migrants, there are going to be more migrant. There's going to be more migrant crime. Obviously, uh, yeah, it's just how numbers work. Yeah, um, Germany as a whole maintains a low crime rate. In those two years, it did it did rise a bit. But if you dig into those numbers, it does appear that refugees fleeing war torn nations like Syria, who would have been granted asylum, were less likely to to commit crimes than migrants who are less likely to be given asylum. So if you think that you're not going to be allowed to stay in the country, you're more likely to, to commit a crime there, which is interesting. Okay. Um, also, while the crime rate may have risen for, by 10% for those two years, right now Germany is experiencing a 72% increase in anti-immigrant crimes on the far right. <sighs> of course. So uh, Why wouldn't that happen? If, if, if you want to cherry-pick numbers, I can play that game all day, Tucker. And then here he, he's got a bit more uh, ball-sucking to do for, for Victor Orban. Oh, great. 
But there was one country in Europe that decided not to play along with this disaster. It's not coincidental that that country is hated by the same ideologues in Washington who pushed the Iraq war. The same people who helped cause this problem are angry at a man called Viktor Orban, who's the democratically elected prime minister of Hungary. Large ass. And back in 2015, he decided, no, we're not going to allow our nation of 10 million people to be changed forever by people we didn't invite in and who are coming here illegally. And so he put a stop to it. In the face of great international pressure, they called him all kinds of names. The EU called what he was doing illegal, but he did it anyway. Where did he get the authority to do this? He just asserted that he had it. No one challenged him. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and what what he was doing was illegal by EU standards, and he was in, in Hungary's an EU member state, so like there are agreed to laws that he was violating That's you how mean that a works. subject country of germany <laughs> the german empire <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah now tucker is going to use this to segue into his trip to the hungarian border with serbia he built a wall and today we went to see it we took a military helicopter down to the southern border of hungary right where it borders serbia and we looked at this Hungarian wall that has effectively ended illegal migration into the country. And we found a couple of things. For one, it's not actually a wall. It's a chain link fence. It's very simple. And if you sat for the last five years and listened to American experts debate how it's impossible to stop immigration with the wall, no matter how high tech, you learned that that's a complete lie. All you need is the will to do it. So we went down there. And we watched that wall and we noticed a couple of things. For one thing, unlike every border we've ever visited around the world, it was perfectly clean and orderly. There weren't piles of trash. There weren't scenes of human suffering because it was under control. Chaos creates humanitarian disasters. That's true everywhere on the, around the world. And it's true particularly on borders and particularly on our southern border where there are people suffering and dying because the Biden administration has abetted, in fact, welcomed chaos. But we didn't see that today. We saw order and clarity. You are not allowed to come to Hungary illegally. While we were on the border today, the Serbian border in Hungary, we saw two people who attempted to come illegally. Both of them turned out to be from Syria. And we watched what happened when they were apprehended. It was a very straightforward process, so straightforward that it was a little confusing to watch. They came over the border. They were immediately picked up by Border Patrol. They were brought to a detainment area. They were treated politely. We were there the whole time. They were photographed. They were searched for weapons on the outside of their clothing. And then they were escorted through a door. And we followed them. We thought they're going to further processing or to meet with their attorneys or some Soros-funded NGO and then moved into some other part of Hungary to stay there forever, at least a few years. But that's not what it was. That door was the border. And as we followed them through, they were escorted back where they came from into Serbia, and they can apply for asylum somewhere else. That straightforward immigration policy, no, you're not allowed to come here illegally, I'm sorry, this is a real country, we have laws, works. And it doesn't require a GDP the size of the United States' GDP. It doesn't require high-tech walls or guns or surveillance equipment. All it requires is the will to do it. That was a lot. So he's celebrating human suffering because it is happening out of his sight. 
Yeah, his problem with human suffering seems to be if it's visible to him. Yeah, and then <laughs> what is he talking about with Joe Biden's policies at the border? Like, my thought is he's talking about child camps, and that wasn't Biden's idea. Yeah, no, he... Uh, but I don't... I don't it, he, he didn't he, say that. He's talking about Biden signaling that it's okay for immigrants to come to America, so now a lot of them are, and it's more than can be processed. Okay. And people <laughs> are dying? Is that... Yeah, I mean, and... the uh, From what I can... I, I hate trying to figure out exactly, like... So the, he has this guy named Bill Malugin who brings brings footage from the border all the time. Okay. Um, but the little the the times that I've been able to to dig into what's actually going on, I don't think what's going on in the footage is usually what he says is going on. But it's yeah. just, it's so hard to be sure because like the border is pretty secretive and like as far as the actual processing on on a day to day basis. Um, so it's a little bit hard to figure out what's actually going on there. It, there are some internal memos from um from people in the Biden administration that there there are a lot more people at the border than they anticipated and they're having a really hard time managing it. So it it, it is pretty chaotic right now. Um but just Tucker, you know, Tucker's not being a good faith actor about it. No, yeah, like the all I said it earlier, all he does is vaguely gesture at imagined villains like <laughs> yeah. Yeah, something else I was thinking about. Swerves is like in his nineties. What are these people going to do when he dies? They'll have nobody to. I mean, it, it'll, it'll find another old rich. It'll Jew. just be Bill Gates. <laughs> it'll yeah. be Bill Gates. It'll be someone. It'd be it'd be a lot more fun if it was Elon Musk. Oh, that'd be so funny. <laughs> um, I don't think it would ever be Elon Musk. Though. No, Elon Musk is the real life iron man there's nothing he could do that'd be wrong <sighs> um yeah so he he told that story about watching the two people be escorted back out back outside the border um also he talks about like oh you can't come here illegally like we make up the laws asshole <laughs> <laughs> yeah and one one thing that's interesting, uh, just some of the some of the reading that I did about them, d- different journalists who have like been near the Hungarian border. Uh, it, in order to take photographs of the border, you have to have a permit from the Hungarian government. Ah, something so, you do when you have nothing to hide. <laughs> yeah. Weird how uh, how Orban seems to deny most of those, but he was fine with Tucker taking the taking footage, almost mm-hmm. like he knows he won't uh, he won't be honest about what he, he, re- he records. Yeah. And- and he won't be challenged on anything. <laughs> um, but T- Tucker has a different, has another story about uh, what happened while he was there t- today. And as we watched this happen, we said to a Hungarian minister who was standing there, it's hard to believe that's your policy? When you come here illegally, you're just escorted out politely? And he said, quote, we're a serious country. How embarrassing to be an American in a conversation like that, to realize the greatest country on earth is not on some level a serious country because it allows the chaos that inevitably occurs, the human suffering that inevitably occurs when you open your borders. By the way, we couldn't help but notice that on the Serbian side of the border where the migrants are massing, trash and filth everywhere. Boy, does that tell you a lot. So it was a deeply revealing moment, and we're going to have more. We've had a number of them here in Hungary. A small country with a lot of lessons for the rest of us. And one last thing. 
because the example of Hungary is so powerful, not just in Europe, but to the world, to the entire world, not simply the West, what you can do with a relatively small economy and not many people, if you're just serious about keeping your nation from being destroyed, because the lessons are so obvious and there's such a clear refutation to the policies we currently have and the people who instituted those policies, Hungary and its government have been ruthlessly attacked and unfairly attacked. It's authoritarian. They're fascists. They are. That is, there are many lies being told right now. That may be the greatest of all. The last Hungarian revolution was less contested than our last revolution and probably more transparent. That's true. It's not an endorsement of anybody, but that's true. So ignore the lawyers, the liars rather, and the lawyers, and judge for yourself. Is it working in Hungary or not? We think that it is. What does that mean? The, about the revolution? Yeah. It, it, yeah what, I, is, what is an uncontested revolution? I can't, I, I don't know what he was trying to get out there. I can't really figure that one out. Okay. Uh, I, uh, and then backing up a little bit, if we actually had open borders, which we don't, Tucker, um, <laughs> we probably wouldn't have this quote unquote chaos at the border because we would just be letting people in. Yeah. It, there wouldn't be this backup. <laughs> Yeah, like it, 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 and it shouldn't be lost in this conversation that a fuck ton of people who come to our border are still being deported, <laughs> like it, you know, or held in camps, which, or held in camps woo! and separated from their parents. I, I think they're being held together now. I think that's a step in the right direction. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, yeah. So just Tucker is so hammering like it. It's a small country with a lot of, with a lot of lessons to learn. We should be more like authoritarian fascists. Yeah. Like who rig their elections. Except actually rig their elections, not Donald Trump rig their elections. And like I I want to say that you can't you can't hide this anymore. You can't go you can't pretend that you're not a fascist anymore, but he can because he's just lying about what Hungary is like. Yeah, and so. and his audience doesn't know any different. Yeah. It seems like uh, let's see. Do you remember that infrastructure bill that's going on? Yeah. Tucker has some thoughts. I'm so surprised. So we're finally learning some about what's in the new trillion-dollar infrastructure bill in the United States Senate that all Democrats and quite a few Republicans actually support. At some point, we'll get their names and read them to you on the air. In the bill, there is $250 million, a quarter billion dollars for invasive plant species removal. There's 50 million for reports on climate change, of course, and engaging what are called disadvantaged communities. There's a lot in there, and we'll tell you more coming up. But tonight you should know that the bill would allow the federal government to spy on people in their cars. We're not exaggerating this. The law would mandate the installation of, quote, advanced technology in every new vehicle sold in the United States to, quote, monitor if drivers are, quote, impaired. It's lunacy, and unless someone stops it soon, it's coming. So I don't believe that for a second. Yeah, so what he's talking about um, is, like, drunk driving monitoring technology. Okay. Um, from what I understand, this isn't even, like, breathalyzers. It's, like, eye tracking. and uh, Okay. And so what's in the language in the bill instructs the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to initiate a rulemaking process for the technology. Uh, the legislation gives the NHTSA three years to evaluate possible technologies and set up a standard for impaired driving prevention in new vehicles. 
After that, the automakers would be given another three years to implement the new standard. There are obviously reasons to do this. Uh, data compiled by, by the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation found that drug driving costs in the United States about $132 billion each year. Wow. Um, not to mention prevention of drug driving would save an average of 9,400 9, lives a year. Um, and this isn't, even, this isn't even like a new idea. Several automakers have already committed to implementing this before it was ever even before the bill was even written. Cool. Um, Volvo announced Volvo announced its intention to implement technology of this nature in 2019. Um, Nissan revealed the concept car with preventative features against impaired driving all the way back in 2007. Wow. And Toyota announced a drunk driving prevention system in 2007 with implementation in 2009. So it, th- th- this is not this is not the scandal Tucker wants to pretend it is. <laughs> So it's not new, <laughs> and like I, I, like I said earlier, I I still have a lot of like libertarian instincts. I'm very privacy oriented. I'm very yeah, and like I I kind of feel you on this. Like I don't love the idea of like having a camera on my eyes all the time oh, or the, something. But this feels just like so, like. But I feel like stopping people from driving drunk would be good for people. Yeah, I mean, like it'd be good for it, society. I, I, I had a friend who was killed by a drunk driver last year. It would be awesome if he was still alive, you know. Yeah. So, like, I even in the language spell out bill, it would be like six years down the road. Do you think if they implemented it differently, like instead of eye tracking, like if it, like a lot of new cars have like out outer cameras. So, like, what if it detected you were like swaying around? Like that feels different to me. I think that's part of it too. Like watching through swerving. Yeah, like it. Like if it, if you were swerving past a certain level, it like tests your breath or something. Yeah, it seems like there are there are certain. It seems like there are different options for like ways that technology could operate that. Part of the rulemaking process they're supposed to be looking at over these three years is like determining what they want to implement. Okay, yeah, because like I I feel better about that than like having my eyes be tracked for some reason. <laughs> I like, get cause, it, just because it's not on my person. Yeah. Um. Uh, I don't know. I have to think about it. <laughs> and he he's going to circle back to this infrastructure bill more in a minute. Um. But first, he he gets to talking about immigration again. And uh, he's got a real fucked up story. Unlike you, being forced to wear a mask and get the vaccine, they have total freedom, those foreign nationals breaking our laws. What's interesting is you don't typically see waves like this of human migration in midsummer. Historically, June and July have been light months for border crossings from Mexico. It's just too hot. But this year is different. The world's poor understand that America no longer has borders. Joe Biden invited millions to come and then promised them free health care and education and housing when they arrived. So they're coming. You would too. Why wouldn't they? The migrants arriving are coming in unprecedented numbers from around the world, many thousands from Brazil alone. But they're also coming from Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, the Middle East, all over Latin America. Our country has literally never seen anything like this. The question is, what does it do for Americans? How does it improve your life or the life of any citizen here? And by the way, why should you obey our laws now that the White House has told the rest of the world it doesn't have to? No one in authority has explained any of that. And at the same time, the downsides of all of this are becoming very obvious to everybody. Try as they do to squelch it. A few days ago, for example, in Minnesota, an illegal alien from Cuba beheaded a woman in broad daylight as she was sitting in traffic. Bystanders found her head in an intersection by her car. 
It was an awful crime, obviously, but the worst part was it didn't need to happen. Authorities had been aware for years that the killer was living illegally in this country, but they refused to deport him because he had rights. Even now, most in the news media will not report the fact that he was an illegal alien. Telling you that might discredit Joe Biden's immigration policy. Huh. We found one immigrant who's also a serial killer. Be afraid of all immigrants. <laughs> yeah, uh, you'll be shocked to hear that Tucker is leaving some context out of this story. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the woman who was beheaded was, in that story is, was named America Thayer. Uh, the man who decapitated her was named Alexei Sabori. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know. Alexei was her boyfriend. So this wasn't just like a random killing. Okay. Um, he was in the car with her on their way to a court hearing related to a previous domestic violence incident. What seems to have happened is that they got stuck in traffic, wound up arguing. They had tried to break up with him, and he killed her. Uh, Mr. Sabori had a criminal history that included a domestic assault conviction for another attack against Thayer in 2017. Sabori is an undocumented immigrant from Cuba, but when he was convicted of his previous crimes, the government didn't just decide not to deport him for no good reason, like Tucker is suggesting. The government actually did attempt to deport Sabori, but the Cuban government refused to receive him. So they, they couldn't, because Cuba wouldn't take him back. Okay. Um, Tucker's use of this story is pretty exploitative. He... He he leaves out that this was a domestic issue um, and acts like it was just a random beheading in the middle of the street. Yeah. Uh, because, Could happen to anyone. Yeah. Because if it becomes like – if he acknowledges that she was his girlfriend and they'd had a history of this and it was a complicated situation, that de-universalizes the threat of these migrants. Yeah. He'd much rather people think that you can just be sitting in traffic and somebody's going to run up and cut your head off. Yeah. And also, as like on a humanitarian basis – um. Deporting him, if he's this, if he were this like crazy serial killer that Tucker's painting him to be, deporting him doesn't help anyone. It just sends him to be a serial killer somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ugh. and that's not good either. America first, Tyler. Yeah. Woo. In this is not natural. It is a manufactured disaster. It's not a tornado. It's not an act of God. The Biden administration did this on purpose, and they're still doing it. And that is exactly why Democrats become hysterical when you mention the obvious successes that are on display here in Hungary on the immigration question. They don't want you to know that there is an option to the chaos and filth and crime growing all around us. We don't have to live like that anymore. Actually, we could have a functioning country. All we'd have to do is to uphold our own laws, the ones already on the books. But that's not happening. Instead, the administration is using American courts to encourage more illegal immigration from other countries. In his immigration plan, Joe Biden proposes millions more in federal dollars to lawyers in order to defend foreign nationals caught entering our country. So as an American citizen, you can be summarily fired from your job for not taking the unapproved COVID vaccine. Yet if you sneak into our country violating our laws and you're COVID positive coming from Haiti or Brazil or Ghana or Honduras, you get a free lawyer, you get free housing, and then you get free health care. So watching all this, after a while, you begin to wonder, what's the point of having American citizenship? What's the point of paying your taxes? 
who's getting free health care and housing and food? Yeah, that that that's no one. That's bullshit. Um, it, what he's talking about when he says immigrants get free health care, he's just talking about emergency room services because they can't turn you away if you're having a medical emergency. Okay, so that's the same for everyone who lives here. Yeah, it's it's like less than one percent of Medicaid costs every year. It's it's not a big issue. Um, there were at least two other things in there. What was it? Um, uh, but if maybe free housing, if by that he means the detention center, maybe. Uh. Um. Okay. The I think the first thing was he has to pretend that the Democrats want. He has to pretend that Democrats are encouraging like murderers to live here. Yeah. Um. And then he's like, oh, they're encouraging illegal immigration. If if. We are encouraging people to come here, and they come, then it's not illegal. Yeah. Like, it's only legal if he wants it. If It's only le- it's only legal if Tucker wants them to live here. Yeah, he, he complained about Biden wanting to hire more immigration lawyers. Like, it, a big part of the problem why it's so hard to process people in a timely manner at the border is because there aren't enough immigration lawyers or judges. Like, hiring more could help alleviate that chaos Tucker is so worried about. But we're not just, you know, sending them back, so it's not what he wants. Yeah. <sighs> um, wow, I don't I don't actually know what this clip is, but I labeled it good things. <laughs> Other smaller countries, far less privileged places, have figured this out. Here's footage that we just shot in Budapest. Notice as you watch it what you don't see. There are not tent cities of drug addicts living in the parks here. There isn't garbage and human waste littering the sidewalks. People don't get beheaded at intersections. BLM is not allowed to torch entire neighborhoods in Budapest. That's how Americans used to live before our leaders decide they no longer cared about you. The Hungarian government protects its border because it wants to protect its citizens. That's the basic role of government. It's not a radical concept. It used to be commonplace across the world, especially in the United States, and now it's not. Here's the Prime Minister of Hungary explaining it, Viktor Orban. This is our country. This is our population. This is our history. This is our language. So we have to do that. Of course, if you are in trouble and there is nobody closer to you than the Hungarians, you have to be helpful. But you can't say simply that, okay, it's a nice country. I would like to come here and to live here because it's a nicer life. This is not a human right to come here. No way, because it's our land. It's a nation, it's a community, families, history, tradition, language. Ooh, they're so triggered by that. Family, history, tradition, language, quote. They hate it when you say that, but why? Those are all good things. In fact, they're the things that unite a country, particularly a huge continental country that's multi-ethnic. You need those things. It's not hard to have a decent country. It's not complicated. You just need leaders who want one. Okay, there we go. Um, so that was that was good things. Yeah, great things. Um, here's a good thing. Good thing he was just making up all of that shit about what <laughs> yeah. America looks like. Yeah, for real. This is this is disgraceful. Like it, I, I keep going back to just like. How can he? How can he claim to be a patriot? You know, yeah. All he's done all week is trash America in yeah. favor of this this tiny regime country. Yeah. Um, and 
And now we we circle back to the infrastructure bill. Joe Biden's infrastructure bill is winding its way through the Senate. A lot going on. You may have missed this, but you should know it is moving without meaningful Republican opposition. That means unless something changes very soon, it will become law. Here's what you should know about that bill. It's 2,700 pages long. It will cost more than a trillion dollars. It will not pay for itself, despite what they told you. And much of it has nothing whatsoever to do with infrastructure, meaning fixing our crumbling roads and bridges and airports and train stations and all the rest that embarrasses Americans. Instead, this bill will make science denial official. It will enshrine gender identity in federal law. Um, What do you know about fake science? (laughs) Yeah, so the... It's like your whole thing. This is so stupid. So the, the word gender appears five times in the bill. In the 2,700 pages? Yes. Uh, also, what does its length have to do with its good or bad? They, they did this with Obamacare, too, where they like brought up, I, I don't, I think it was Paul Ryan, maybe, brought out like a printed stack of the, it, it, I think it was either Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell, um, to show how thick Obamacare was. Like, look, look at how big, how much stuff is in this bill. It's like, cool. I like it when the government does things. Yeah. <laughs> And Trump did it, too. He was like, look at all these regulations we're cutting. And he brought out, like, ten stacks of six-foot-high paper. Like, the the way these things are written, it's such specific, like, legal framework yeah. jargon that, like, of course it's going to take... It, it takes you three pages to say a, a complete thought. Yeah. So, um... But, yeah... Being that, thorough as a bad thing is ridiculous. Well, well, you, you remember Paul Ryan's like, you, you should be able to file your taxes on a postcard. <laughs> yeah, and then they just crammed all of the normal stuff onto a postcard yeah. and like, it's better now. Yeah. Why? <laughs> so stupid. Um, like, the, the, the only sense in which they're for small government is like small government documents. <laughs> uh, they're only for small government until they're in power yeah. and then they're... They abandoned that idea, and, and I mean, specificity of language gives them less legal, less wiggle room to flout flout regulations. So I yeah. mean, but yeah, the the word gender appears five times in the bill. First on page thirty seven, um, there it states that it, the bill states that it is necessary to continue the disadvantaged business enterprise program, which is a Department of Transportation program designed to provide contracts for highway, transit, and airport projects. To small businesses owned by people belonging to socially socially and economically disadvantaged groups. Um, the next two times that the word gender appears in the bill, it's on page two thousand and ninety-five, <laughs> 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 where it states which section of the United States legal code defines the term gender identity. And the final two appearances are on page two thousand two thousand one hundred and forty-nine, which states no individual in the United States may. On the basis of actual or perceived race, color, religion, national origin, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, or disability, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subject to discrimination under any program or activity that is funded in whole or in part with the funds made available to carry out this title. So, all he's upset about is that it includes gender identity in the categories that you can't discriminate against. Sounds about right. Yeah. He does... He sure does hate trans people. He sure does. It would allow the government to track your driving. Why? So they can charge you a fee for every mile you go. This in addition to the gas tax. 
And scariest of all, this bill requires all new vehicles in the United States to come with monitoring technology, such as eye scanners or breathalyzers. And that means that going forward, you will need the express permission of your federal overlords before you start your car in the morning, because it's their car now. He's really going to bat for drunk drivers. <laughs> also, I feel like he has no sense of what kinds of cars people drive. The newest car I have ever driven was eight years old so even if they like did this tomorrow yeah a vast majority of people wouldn't be driving a car with one yeah so say for they, a decade right say they stick to their timeline and they have this implemented on new cars in six years it like you said it's gonna be another decade before most people are getting a car with this technology in it. exactly like, but yeah that 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 other boogeyman he boogeyman he threw out there that that's it's gonna charge. It's gonna track you to charge you by the mile that you drive. Doubt. Um, so here's what he's talking about. There, the bill inclu- the bill includes a provision for the creation of a pilot program that would test the use of a fee that would charge motorists based on the number of miles they drive. The pilot program would quote test the design, acceptance, impl- implementation, and financial sustainability of a national motor vehicle per mile user fee, and provide recommendations for establishing such a fee. The pilot program would run from fiscal year 2022 to 2026. If, after 2026, Congress decided to enact such a program, it would require separate legislation. Okay, so they're not enacting anything. They're just (laughs) saying we're going to test something and then maybe try it. Yeah, because, you know, it's so easy for Congress to draft a second bill. (laughs) Um, Definitely never been any historical difficulties with getting something through the Senate. It's also unknown whether or not this program would be in addition to the the gas tax or a replacement for the gas tax. Um, But I think the the latter is probably more likely because one of the arguments in favor of a per-mile tax is that as we shift away from fossil fuels, we'll have more vehicles on the road that don't run on gas, and revenue to maintain roads will still, will still need to come from somewhere. So it seems like a lot of the proponents of this are floating it explicitly as a replacement to the gas tax for when electric vehicles, electric vehicles are more prevalent. Uh, I found a breakdown of what this might look like compared to the gas tax. If you drive 12,000 miles in a year and your car gets 22 miles t- per gallon, you would end up paying $5.20 $5.24 more in a year under the mileage tax than the gas tax. Also, two states already do this. Utah and Oregon both have a per-mile taxation program. So, like, do I like the idea? No, but also it's probably not happening. <laughs> it's... <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's not as big of a deal as he wants to act like. Yeah. And, again, I would be shocked if this was ever actually implemented. Yeah, um, yeah. And, like, I I understand that roads need to be repaired. So, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't honestly imagine electric vehicles being that big in the next couple years. Yeah, not, like, not anytime There's soon. only, like, two of them. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there will be, like, a huge thing. But, like, I remember reading a lot of people, like, don't like electric cars there were there it might have been just in california there were people who tried electric cars and then a huge portion of people who got their first electric car went back to gas because it's so difficult to like get it charged yeah um yeah and there there are other environmental 
environmental considerations, like uh, the the cost of mining for battery materials. Yeah, uh, produces a shit ton of waste. So like it, and like lithium is not a renewable resource yeah. either. So we, we we've got a ways to go. Yeah. <laughs> but then here here's the fucked up part of this segment. Do you remember how he mentioned before he wanted to read the names of all the Republicans who were supporting this bill? Yeah. As of tonight, 20 Republican senators appear to support this lunacy. The final vote is this weekend, so if you have views about this, you might want to let them know right away. They assume you're not paying attention, so they can do whatever they want to you. And in this case, they are. Here are the 17 Republicans who have already voted to move this bill forward, listed in alphabetical order. Roy Blunt, Richard Burr, Shelley Moore Capito, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Kevin Kramer, Mike Crapo, Lindsey Graham, of course, Chuck Grassley, John Hoven, Mitch McConnell, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Jim Risch, Mitt Romney, Tom Tillis, and Todd Young. Now, a few of these people plan to retire soon, thank heaven, but most of them intend to get reelected at some point. And it might be good if voters made that impossible. I'm surprised Lindsey Graham and Chuck Grassley are voting on anything a Democrat's voting on. Yeah, but that just, that is the, I mean, we, we've covered extensively how he browbeats the Republican Party to shape them into his image, but that yeah. is, that's the most explicit he has ever yeah, been. Yeah, like that, that was just straight up, like, these are the bad guys, vote them out. Yeah, which I I'm not crazy about. I'm not crazy about him taking that approach because Tucker's version of the world sucks. Yes, it does. Also, Lindsey Graham just won his reelection, so I guess remember how mad you are right now <laughs> yeah. in six years. Yeah, well, I mean, in six years they might be ready to roll out the, that drunk driving text. So, <laughs> um, and then this is our last clip from uh, Tucker Carlson tonight. Um, he's going to sum up his time in Hungary. So it turns out that when you go to Hungary, you make a lot of people in Washington mad. Why do they get so mad? They don't like the contrast with the country they've created? Really? It's interesting. A tiny country in the middle of Central Europe, 10 million people, an economy smaller than New York State. If you mention it, they're triggered. Well, think about why. You're so fucking smarmy. I know, he's the worst. They're triggered. Fuck off. Like it, he he revels in that. He's so happy that people are mad at him for going to Hungary. You're bolstering an anti-democratic regime. I can't imagine why people would be upset with you. Yeah. So then uh, this gets us into our last leg of this episode. Um, the the speech that he gave at this uh, I believe it's MCC. Let me double check quick. Yes. Okay. So it's the MCC festival. Uh, this is a, a right-wing conference that's put on by um, it's, it's MCC University, which is a uh, a university which Orban has given um, a shit ton of money to, like like one percent of the country's GDP. He, he's giving to this college, Jesus, um, because he is hoping to establish it as a basically an, indoctr- an indoctrination factory for a conservative intelligentsia. Great. Um, he like the. Some of their uh, their curriculum sounds pretty iffy. It's stuff like, um, is diversity positive for for Western societies? <laughs> Things like that. Um, and he uh, he's been pretty clear about his intentions that he he wants a uh, 
he wants to engineer a conservative middle class by supporting institutions like this. Um, so the, this is their conference. Tucker Carlson is a keynote speaker. Dennis Prager is also there um, Dennis Prager. Gi- giving a speech. Uh, I, I looked into some of these other people. Like, Surprisingly, some of the people giving presentations at this conference weren't so bad. Like, There are some folks who believe in climate change. <laughs> Um, but then they're also, Crazy. but then they're also some some pretty explicit fucking fascists. So, like Dennis Prager and Tucker Carlson. <laughs> uh, yeah. So here is the here's how Tucker opens his speech at this conference. the The title of the speech is "The World According to, T- to Tucker Carlson." Thank you for having me. This is uh, this is by far the weirdest thing I've ever done. But I'm really enjoying it, and I'm grateful to be here. Dennis Prager is standing there. It's unbelievable. I don't have my glasses on. That is Dennis Prager. Oh, bless you. Um, anyway, thank you so much for having me. We have been here for a week, and, uh, and we've loved it. We've really, really loved it. And it has been very different from what we expected. So I work at Fox News in the United States, which is not available here. Um, <laughs> I know, sadly, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and... Every year we try to go someplace around the world and see what it looks like and see how people live outside the United States. The U.S. is a continental country, and it's very cut off from the rest of the world, as those of you who are from there have been there know, and you don't really get a sense that there are other people in the world living, you know, happy lives. And so once in a while it's worth getting out. So we come here. I was impressed personally by uh, the response of your government to the 2015 migrant crisis. Hungary stood alone essentially, in saying, you know, no thanks. And that struck me as a totally legitimate thing to do. So right off the bat, it's all about immigration. That's, that's what he cares about here. Yep. He, and then he's going to get into reading mean tweets. Seriously? Kind of. <laughs> um, and I had heard that Budapest was a beautiful city, nice people, good food, so we came. So we were here... Three days. I don't do social media. I don't know if you know what social media are. Sort of the beginning of the end of civilization and literacy. So I don't participate at all. So I had no real sense of how our trip, I mean, we just, in the end, run a cable show. We're not elected to anything. We have no actual power other than the power to talk unimpeded, which is increasingly a rare luxury in the United States. So I didn't really have a sense of how it was going uh, until yesterday... And I'm going to, I need my glasses because I'm getting a little old. One of my producers sent me the following tweet. Now, this is from someone whose name you probably will not recognize. I won't say it. But this is a longtime Washington Post columnist who works for the Atlantic Magazine, who is reportedly an expert on the region, as we say in Washington, where I'm from, the region. And the region can encompass like a huge geographic area with you know, maybe dozens of countries with different cultures and different languages, but in Washington, we reduce it to something called a region. And you become an expert in the region. And you are the person we ask when we want to understand what's going on there. So this person who sent this out is an, an expert on the region. And I happen to know, since I live there, this person is actually stupid. Most people don't know that. So people read her Twitter feed. So I read the following, and I want to read this slowly for those of you who don't have English as a, as a first language, so I want you to catch every word. And those of you who are from America will understand why it was the funniest thing I've read this year, and I'm quoting. So the person he's talking about is Ann Applebaum. She's not stupid. but He has to pretend that it's ridiculous that anyone could know a lot about something. 
Yeah, I well, mean, she's an expert. Like, like, it, like coming from a more sincere person, I might take that as a valid criticism. But from Tucker Carlson, it's nonsense. Yeah. So he's he's gonna read this tweet from Ann Applebaum, and uh, this is a, this is a ride. In Orban's Hungary, more than ninety percent of the media is controlled by the ruling party. Businesses are physically and legally harassed if they don't toe the party line. Election, listen, this gets better. Elections are manipulated. And my favorite, party leaders are mysteriously rich. And I thought to myself, wait a second, that sounds familiar. I live in that country. I live in a country where over 90% of the media are aligned with the ruling party. In fact, I work at the only mass media outlet in the entire country of 340 million that is not aligned with the ruling party. You watch CNN, which I believe is available here, and I think they may be here today. Welcome, CNN. I worked there for many years. And you will never hear a single word on CNN that deviates from the party line coming from the White House of the United States, from the Biden administration. That's exactly right. I have lived in cities. I know that if you were dumb enough to put up a sign in the window of your store in an American city disagreeing with the prevailing party orthodoxy on any one of a number of questions, whether it's immigration, human sexuality, who you're going to vote for, you get your window smashed. If you disobey the political orders from the ruling party, they'll shut you down. And I live in a country where Barack Obama, who has never actually had a paying job in the private sector, is now living on you know a $30 million estate on an island off the coast of Massachusetts and throwing himself a birthday party, I believe today, with 200 servants. So I think we're checking the politicians become mysteriously rich box on that. So I read this and I think, and I am as patriotic American as you're going to find. I'm not leaving. I will never leave, no matter what happens to the country. I don't have a foreign passport. I'm in. In fact, that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it, because I have nowhere to go, and I've got four children and four dogs. And they don't travel well. We're not leaving. So I'm all in on America, and I think, you know, this is a, this is a really dark moment in American history, but I think that it will improve. So I'm not attacking America, merely the current condition of America, when I say that I read that and I laughed out loud. Because it's hilarious. This is so exhausting. <laughs> yeah, that was a whole lot of uh, uh, whitewashing and false equivalency. And oh, we're just as bad, guys. <laughs> yeah, like that. That's not an argument. Like, oh no, we're bad in all these same ways. That's not. Uh, fuck off. Yeah, like you're saying that you like Hungary, right? <laughs> and also, I, how can you say he doesn't have a passport while standing in a different country? Yes. And then, I don't... 90% of the media agrees with the ruling party? Yeah, I... Ruling is is the wrong word, <laughs> first of all. Literally, 90% of media in Hungary is controlled by the regime. Yes. Including every regional newspaper. You, you fucker. <laughs> You're lecturing this landlocked Central European country of 10 million that has free and fair elections, which has a much healthier media balance. 
I'm sure every person in the front row is like, he has to know. From the yeah, there, it's it's impossible that he doesn't know. And he thinks this is okay. Yeah, it's, this is insane. And his bosses think this is okay. Sure. Yeah. Why? Why do his bosses think this is okay? This is this is fucking crazy. Every person in the front row is from the opposition media, whatever that is. I don't know, because I don't speak Hungarian, because it's a secret code inaccessible to those who weren't born speaking it. So there's a lot I don't know about Hungary, but I know a robust political system when I see one. No one in Hungary on the other side has to hire armed bodyguards. Lots of people in the United States do, I can tell you. You are living under physical threat if you disagree in a loud way. You are immediately censored if you're dependent upon social media to get your message out. I think America is the greatest country in the world. I will always think that. But don't tell me it's freer than Hungary, because that's a lie. How? How do you... Yeah, like, this is so brazen. This is just yeah an inversion of reality. It's, it's insane to watch in real time. It is. So, I read this... And I, and I find it hilarious because it suggests not only a high level of stupidity, which after all these years in Washington, I take for granted because that's, you know, that's the soup I'm drinking, that's the world I live in, but it also suggests a total lack of self-awareness, a total lack. It is the equivalent of gaining 40 pounds and yelling at other people for being fat. It's insane. And I thought to myself, this is not just, you know, contemptible, but it's also a sign of ebbing freedom, of freedom going away. When they ban humor, you know you're moving towards something dark. You are, not, and they have banned humor in the United States. You were not allowed to laugh at things. Nothing is funny. Everything is dead serious. This tells us two things. No one has banned humor. You're just not funny. You're just making the <laughs> shut up. No one's banned humor. You're just not funny, Tucker. Why do they do that? The first two things authoritarian movements do. First, they try to control your language. And second, they stop you from laughing. Why do they do that? Well, they control your language so they can control your mind. And those of you who were born speaking Hungarian, someone said to me the other day that Edward Teller, when he won the Nobel Prize, said, I would not have won this if I didn't speak Hungarian, but because I do, my brain works differently. And I think a language as complex as Hungarian, totally. In I mean, I pick up Spanish going to Taco Bell. I've not picked up one word of Hungarian this entire week. I think it's true, especially for your language, but it's true for all languages. Words determine the way that you think. And if you take the words away, as Orwell famously noted in about four different books and 100 newspaper columns, you take away people's ability to think about things. So that's the first thing they do. Can I just take a second to talk about Taco Bell for a second? Please do. Um, the founder of Taco Bell was a white guy who stole his recipes from a Mexican restaurant in California. <laughs> and you're saying that's where you get your Mexican culture? Yeah. I've, that's pretty fucking telling, Tucker. I've, I have never heard Spanish spoken at a Taco Bell. <laughs> Me either. Me either. And, I, and I'm not saying people who speak Spanish can't work at a Taco Bell, but, like, it is it is the whitest appropriated version <laughs> yeah. of Mexican culture. <laughs> the only one Tucker thinks is safe. So. ...is make it illegal to laugh, particularly at them. Now, why do they do that? 
Well, partly because they're thin-skinned and insecure, and that's why they went into politics in the first place, to prove something to their absent or alcoholic fathers. Granted. But there's a deeper reason for it, and that is that humor is perspective. How do you find something funny? By rising above it to a high altitude and looking down at its outline, by seeing things in their entirety, by looking up from the script and gazing around and noticing where you are and finding it hilarious. That just, in fact, happened to me. So Tucker thinks that Adam Carolla is funny, so I don't really trust his description of humor. Yeah, and like he seems to be implying that jokes are only funny if you're punching down. And that's like yeah. the opposite of true. Literally, by, by standing above something, you think it's funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Tucker. Things are only funny if they're under your boot. <laughs> Which is a really fucked up sense of humor that you have. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, though, if he thinks that's what humor is. Yep. Like when he spent 20 minutes making fun of that blind guy. <laughs> I, I was kind of in my own world texting with my wife and I look up and I'm right across the Danube from Slovakia about to give a speech to people I don't know. And I thought to myself, kind of hilarious. Where am I? Not really sure. Enjoying it? Yes. And I laughed to myself because I had perspective. Perspective is the one thing they refuse to allow you. This is the way it is. This is the way it's always been. And this is the way it's going to be. Now, that's an obvious lie, but in order to convince you of it, they have to eliminate any reference to the past. They topple your statues. They tell you to shut up and stop talking about your family or your country. Be ashamed of what your ancestors did. Hate your history. They prevent you from having old words because old words describe old ideas. And above all, they prevent you from rising above the current situation and looking down to assess it clearly, otherwise known as comedy. They're always whining about not being able to make fun of, like, uh, marginalized people. Yeah. Like, Yeah, well, it's just a joke, man. I actually like them. <laughs> sure. So I'm not bragging when I say the United States has been, I'm 52, for my life the single funniest country in the world. A truly hilarious place. We have an entire economy built on being funny. It's called stand-up comedy. And we led the world, as we did in aerospace, uh, in comedy for generations. It's all gone. It's all gone. It is no longer allowed. So I think if you're going to, you know, recognize what's happening, you first need to recognize that this is not liberalism, that is being imposed on you. That's one of the many words they've stolen. It is illiberalism. It is the opposite of liberalism. It is a totalitarian idea that everyone behaves the same, everyone reads from the same catechism, from the same list of slogans, and that everyone obeys. That is the opposite of enlightenment liberalism, which forms the basis of my politics and my worldview. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is they hate it when you leave the country and look around because you might conclude that, hey, even a, you know, a country with a GDP smaller than the state of New York that has no navy because it doesn't have an ocean, that is stuck between hostile neighbors that's been overrun by foreign powers you know, for the last 900 years, even a country like that can have kind of happy people and can stand up for its own citizens. 
So if they can do it, if they can do it, why can't we do it? Like, how hard is it? I went to your border. Is he insinuating that America doesn't have, quote, kind of happy people? That seems to be where he's going. What world do you fucking live in? (laughs) And what kind of point is it that a country without a coastline doesn't have a navy? (laughs) Wow, I'm shocked. What kind of criticism is that? I'm blown away. Look how different their society is. They don't even have a navy. I have never once seen the navy. (laughs) That has not affected my life in any way whatsoever, whether or not my country has a navy. Yeah, and fucking Tucker, like, enlightenment liberalism forms the basis of my worldview, really because you sure seem to agree with the guy who calls his philosophy illiberalism. Yeah, you sure seem to co-opt the language of the fascist. Jesus Christ. This idea that, like, them censoring my language and my humor is illiberal. No one's censoring you, first of all. You have a fucking TV show on cable. Yeah, and, like, he's... No, you don't have the right to hurt other people that's like the reason that you can't say the n-word anymore like it that's not something that's being taken from you it's not a right right that you had like it's yeah it (sighs) it was always wrong and people have come to accept that it is wrong and so people don't like it when you do it anymore it's it's illiberal to take away my right to be a bigot (laughs) yeah so uh, he he talks about how he he went to their border. Um, I I, sk- I didn't cut most of this next segment because he tells that story again about how he he watched them detain the two people and um, take and take them back to the border and it, the whole thing take about thirty minutes. Um, okay. He tells that story again. He's workshopped a bit now. He has some jokes in there, and uh, I'm not going to give him the satisfaction. Okay. So we're going to skip that. I'm sure they were hilarious, hilarious <laughs> jokes. Um. Uh, I, I mean, I know enough about Hungary to know if you see somebody ta- being taken away, they're being taken to the dungeon. Ho, ho, ho. Um, <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing took 30 minutes. That was the whole process. They weren't dropped off in downtown Budapest to beg or to live in a shelter. They were just politely told, I'm sorry, you don't have permission to come here. See you next time. And sure, try again. I said, will they try again? Oh, absolutely, they'll try again. What are you going to do that time? Bring them back. How many times? Well, the record is 52. But we can go to 53. We can do that. We have the technology of guys who can walk, and we'll just escort them through the border door. Okay. And that's why there's no one at the border. So I thought about this for a second, and I thought, what does this say about Hungary? It doesn't suggest profound technological sophistication. It suggests profound commitment. These are people who've decided they want to do something using the lowest tech means possible or achieving it much more effectively than the power of the United States government. A profound commitment to hurting anyone who wasn't born within a arbitrary set of lines. (laughs) Well, borders are naturally occurring, so... (laughs) 
And he, here he's got a dumbass metaphor that I'm pretty sure he's used before. It's dumb language. So, what's the difference? And by the way, if I, if I sound critical of my own government, it's because I am. But there's nothing I believe in more than America, so I just want to be totally clear of, on that. And I, and I really think... I don't actually really think what I'm going to say anyway and pretend as though I think Dawn is coming soon. <laughs> but here's the point. What? <laughs> you behave this way if you care. If you care. If you think of your country like your home, you don't want it to look crappy. It's really that simple. If yeah, it's you your house, you want to be in charge of who sleeps there. That's not a complex principle. It's the most basic human principle. A basic human principle is demanding that the pores aren't visible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 it might surprise you to hear that a country is more complex than a household. Yeah. Um, and the same principles might not necessarily apply to both things. Um. There are some things that I think are similar in that if I had a house and... I had a relative who suddenly lost their house, I would help them and yeah. get them into a place so that they weren't on the street. Yeah, weird how that works. Yeah, um, but in our country, um, you're not entitled to to living uh, inside. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a luxury you get by being uh, employed. Jesus Christ. But only if you're employed at somewhere that pays you enough to afford rent. Um, and that's a, that's also a luxury. So you better have been born somewhere that... <laughs> I'm going to keep going if I, if I don't stop. <laughs> the, 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 the capitalist Russian nesting doll. <laughs> um, so, Final point, you better have been born somewhere wealthy or you're going to die poor. <laughs> so then this this gets us to the old man who says that Hungary is a serious country so as I'm standing at the border literally at the border fence thinking about this watching the German shepherd amble past I was trying to talk to a border guard who by the way like as, as noted like every Hungarian I have met every from the driver to the waiter to the border guard had better English than our own president I said, how often do people come to the border? How often do you see migrants putting ladders atop the concertina wire? Is this like every hour, every day? Is it at night? During the, yeah, I'm trying to ask the dumb journalist questions. And he said, well, and then he stopped and he looked down like very intensely, like something bad had happened. And I'm from the U.S. where we have poisonous snakes. So I immediately thought, you know, I don't know if they have cobras in Hungary. Again, I don't speak the language. So I step back, and there is a plastic sandwich bag about that big on the ground stuck at the bottom of the chain link fence. And this guard reaches down, grabs the bag, and puts it in his own pocket. And I don't think I've... I have seen in my life very few displays more powerful than that. So here's a border guard. I don't know what they make. I'm guessing not much. He's a civil servant. He works for the government. 
offended by the idea that there's litter in his country that he puts it in his own pocket. What does that tell you? It's the clearest question. possible expression <laughs> of love and respect. When you love something, you keep it clean. Period. <laughs> so, I do like that Tucker has refined his ending. Um, he went from the, the serious country guy giving him, giving him a profound revelation to uh, the picking up litter guy giving him a, a profound revelation. And just blatantly dodging his question about... <laughs> yeah. I mean, like... It, I know a ton of Americans who pick up litter when they see it. It's not like... People made fun of me when I was younger because I always picked up litter. Like, because middle schoolers are dumb, I guess. <laughs> and then uh, he's going to talk here about cleanliness. This is... the. the... I've said this on television many times, and every time I do, they call me a fascist. As if cleanliness were a fascist quality. It's not. Ethnic it's a virtue. A <laughs> Order and cleanliness are essential to human happiness. And if you have teenagers, you know, because they're filthy. They're disgusting. They live in filth. I've had four. I can attest to this. It's not a moral failing. It is a failure to teach clear virtue. Happy people are organized. My father always made us make our bed in hotel rooms. And I would always say, why would you make your bed in a hotel room? You have a chambermaid to make your bed for you. And my father said, because you respect yourself. And you don't have an unmade bed because you're not a slob, because you're not an animal. And the same is true of countries. If you care about your country, it's clean and orderly. And you can tell precisely the point when people stop caring about their country is when drug addicts start building tent cities on the sidewalk. The entire state of my birth, California, you too? You're a refugee? It's disgusting. And for reasons that used to confuse me but now make perfect sense, hence the one thing they flip out, they become enraged if you complain about, is that. Well, if happy people are organized, no wonder Tucker Carlson's kids were so disorganized. <laughs> yeah, and if that guy were really a refugee, he wouldn't have been allowed in Hungary. So. Nope. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I, just the having to see homeless people means that people don't care about their country. Like, I guess there is an extent to which I would say a country worth living in isn't one that has homeless people if it can avoid it. <laughs> yeah. So we should put homeless people in houses instead of under bridges. Yeah. It's just like it. it every, it's so gross how he just sees them as like blight on the landscape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're just animals to him. And, uh, yeah, that. That sentiment isn't getting any better in this next clip. Oh, great. So you can stand up in the public square in the United States and say, you know, I think our marginal tax rates are too high. Or I think, you know, we should erect more tariffs against American corn or foreign corn competing with American agriculture. That was Trump's policy. Any kind of policy issue. And people will say, you know, that's a good idea. It's not a, not a good idea. Let's debate it. It's fine. That's within bounds. That's allowed. 
If you stand up and say, there is a vagrant defecating on the sidewalk in front of my house, and I came out this morning with a rolled up piece of paper and smacked him in the nose and said, get the hell out of here. You can't crap on the sidewalk. It's my sidewalk. It's my house. It's my city. It's my country. I, I'm, I, I feel sorry for you. I hope you find someplace better to go. I hope you get your life in order, but you're not going to do this here because I live here. If you were to say that out loud, oh, you're a fascist. Oh. What the fuck? <laughs> okay, okay. So I know this is completely a, a small point, but I will do anything to not talk ab about what he's saying. <laughs> um, okay. Tariffs. We should have more tariffs on American corn. But you can't tariff your own country's products. Yeah. <laughs> Trump, Trump tariff Chinese products, but like a tariff is when you put a tax on something coming into your country. You can't tariff your own products. That would just be like a tax, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I never know what Tucker knows and what he doesn't. Like it, it wouldn't surprise me if he has no idea what a tariff is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, and like Trump's thing was like, we need more tariffs because they work and then they didn't work and they had bankrupted American farmers. So like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so now you're saying we should have more tariffs. Yeah, they did not talk about that enough, how Trump had to spend billions of dollars bailing out American farmers for his be tariffs because of his own terrible policies. Yeah, it was what did I I don't think I said this to you on air, but like. When you're getting a face full of sewage, it's hard to detect, like, the vomit in there, you know? <laughs> like, there's just a little bit of it, but it, it slips by you when you're having a deluge of sewage poured into your face. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that new name for our show, a deluge of sewage. <laughs> <laughs> Let's play Spot the Vomit with Troy and Tyler. <laughs> We're getting better at it. That's there. <laughs> and just like hitting a vagrant with a rolled up newspaper. <laughs> like a dog. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how you just said that they're animals to him. And that was the next thing he said. So, why is that not allowed? Why can't you say that? I'll tell you exactly why. Because it reveals how people in charge care about the country they run and about you. They don't care at all. And it's obvious. If you treated your children the way our leaders treat us, you would be declared universally an unfit parent. Really, you encourage your kids to do drugs because you might make money off it? Really? Is that good for the kids? Shut up. Oh, you, you know, your schools are terrible? Like you refuse to teach your kids basic English or math or history? And you don't care? You're not sending to school? They're truants? You're, you're letting your kid live outside and soil himself? You refuse to treat his mental illness? You treat drug addiction like a virtue? You encourage like the most degrading kinds of sexual behavior? Are you joking? We're going to take your kid away. You're a terrible parent. The fuck is he talking about? Only terrible parents exclusively let their kids do some do things that are good for them 
okay, if doing drugs might not be good for people necessarily, but it's not necessarily bad for people, so not sending people to jail for it is fine. It's feeding your kid a hamburger isn't like good for them, but if they wanted one and you never let them eat one, I think you would be a shitty parent. <laughs> yeah, like the, the, the there's a certain extent to which like no, you're only allowed to eat broccoli for your <laughs> entire life until you turn 18 and move. Like like one, that's how you make your kids hate you. <laughs> like one of the functions of being a parent is kind of giving a safe space for bad decisions to be made and learned from. Yeah. Um I mean, say as two people who aren't parents. <laughs> <laughs> We're basically experts. We, 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 we've we both talked a weird amount about what we would do as parents for people who don't want kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to know, just in case one shows up at your doorstep <laughs> yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, however that works. <laughs> you, like, call 1-800-STORKS or something. And also, there's no such thing as a degenerate sexual behavior as long as it's consensual. Yeah. There are differences between parenthood and political leadership. Of course, there are greater limits on political leadership, thank God. But the theme is the same. The most basic prerequisite to leading people is caring about those people. That's the most basic prerequisite. And that's one of the reasons that all good parents are the same may have different traditions, different beliefs, radically different beliefs. But when the parents really love their kids, the kids are going to be okay. I had kids really young, no idea. We had no idea what we were doing. We got married at 22, had kids at 25. Parents weren't, our parents weren't around, really. We bought some book, but it was stupid. And I remember saying to my wife, like, how do you do this? You know, how do you raise children? We had enough trouble house training our spaniels. Like, really, a child? And she goes, you know, I think it'll be fine. You know, just love them and it'll be fine. And they'll kind of forgive you your mistakes in the end if they know that you really love them. And my kids are gone now and that has, that has proven to be true. And it's true of political leadership too. And by the way, the opposite is true. The inverse is true. If people, if the people you lead know that you secretly have contempt for them, they will never forgive you and they never should. So, like, I kind of agree with the sentiment that if you love your kids, things will probably be okay. But I think Tucker and I have a different definition of what love looks like. I I imagine his has a lot of, like, well, you need to learn the harsh truths about the world. Then then I think I would be interested in engendering for a child. Yeah. Like, this is just one of those things, like... what I'm finding more and more is even when it, Tucker says something that I like, I agree with the words that he's saying. The the process the, he used to the get there is wrong, and like the thing he's referencing with his words aren't always the same thing as like yeah the words yeah, that like, I'm using. Like when he when he endorsed that antitrust legislation, I'm also fond of that legislation, but I support it because I think monopolies are exploitative, and he supports it because he thinks that big tech is censoring him. So. Right. And I would say that's true, and I don't want to get off, and I'll stop in just a second. I don't want to get off on all my theories. But I just can't resist saying this since we're standing in the middle of Central Europe looking at these buildings, which move me. Not simply because they're old and some have bullet holes 
which in my view are a very useful reminder. I wish I lived in a city full of bullet holes in the building because every morning you look at them and you think to yourself, it could be really bad because it's been really bad. There's a lot at stake. Make wise, sober, long-term decisions or else you could wind up with more bullet holes. It's true. It's true. And if I would level, and I could spend all day leveling very accurate accusations against the American foreign policy establishment, but the main one would be that they have no sense of how bad things can get. And it's, this is the bad side of the upside of America. America's an optimistic country, always has been. Came from all around the world, showed up in this mostly untouched continent with the most fertile farmland in the world and an ocean to separate us from the lunatics. And it gave us the feeling that anything is, we'll never stop being grateful for that or proud of it. But the downside to that, the flip side, the obverse, the other side of the coin, as you say in Hungary, is that Americans have no sense of how bad things can get. That it actually could be a lot worse. Our physical isolation cuts us off from the history of the rest of the world. There's not a passion to study what happened before in a place that you're building anew. Right? Right. So we don't have a sense of that. So I love your bullet holes. Let me just the only visitor to your nation who's complimented your small arms and artillery scars. Tucker Carlson, I think life would be better if we were under a constant threat of violence. <laughs> yeah. I... Man, there was another segment earlier where he was talking about bullet holes that he didn't play because I knew he was going to echo the sentiments of it there. But um, the point he the point he made in the in the one I skipped, he was saying that um, the bullet holes are a reminder of of Hungary's history of being invaded and victimized, and so it it keeps them on guard against invaders, by which he means immigrants. Yeah. Which, that's not. I mean, the bullet holes didn't get there because of immigration policy. No. Just. And I agree with his sentiment that I think a lot of a lot of times in America we we aren't really aware of how bad things can get. Yeah. Um. I think Tucker is trying to make them that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Like it's it almost feels like it's been too long since anything major has happened that people forget. You know, yeah, I, like I don't think it's a coincidence that kind of like the 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 liberal cooperative world order is kind of starting to decay at the same time that the pe- a lot of people who experienced World War II were dead. Like the interesting, yeah. The the systems that are put in place to prevent that horror seem less necessary when nobody remembers the horrors. Yeah. Um, and we're coming in on the end here. We're almost to the closer, <laughs> but first he's got to talk about architecture. <laughs> So far, we're at, like, a double-length episode. Yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> but here's what I like more about the landscape of Hungary, a few Soviet remnants notwithstanding. It's pretty. It is pretty. The buildings are pretty. The architecture uplifts. So this is another, this is another third rail in American politics. You're not allowed to note that our buildings are grotesque and dehumanizing. Why are they bad? because they're ugly and ugly dehumanizes us. And by, let me be more precise about what I mean when I say dehumanizing. Dehumanizing 
is the act of convincing people that they don't matter, that they are less significant than the larger whole, that they are not distinct souls, that they are not unique, that they are not created by God, that they are merely putty in the hands of some larger force, that they must obey. This is what all authoritarian movements do. You don't matter. Wear a mask. You're all the same. Ugly architecture, brutalist architecture, glass and steel architecture, Mies van der Rohe architecture was designed to send that message. Not to uplift, but to oppress. And it is very noticeable, and this is never noted in the United States, which unfortunately over time has had its aesthetic sense dulled. We've been told it's not important. What matters is GDP, really. You know, get the new microwave or whatever, the new car, the new place in Aspen. Yeah, I'm not against any of that. I'm not against wealth, for sure. But I would trade it to live in a pretty place, a place that uplifts your spirit by looking at it. Why is it more clarifying and refreshing and joy-giving to sit in a meadow than it is in a parking lot? Yeah. Because sitting in a meadow reminds you, you can't help but know that you are connected to nature, created by God, which will endure after you're gone, which existed before you arrived. Nature is the reminder of human folly. There is a limit to what people can achieve. I don't care what some stupid politician promises me, he'll be gone, so will I. So will my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, so will my civilization, but nature will endure. That gives you, like humor, perspective and it connects you to the eternal. And it gets you asking questions about what happens after you die. And maybe accumulating wealth and power isn't the point of life. Maybe there's something bigger. Maybe there's meaning. That's what nature reminds you of. The parking lot suggests that this is all there is. It's utilitarian. Cars park on top of it. They have no respect for it. It was built by people. Everything about that landscape, about the harsh, angular, concrete landscape of modern cities, tells you that you are worthless and that beauty and truth and eternity do not matter. Why are they telling you that? Why do you think they're telling you that? You think there's some reason? Yeah. So they can manipulate you for their own power and aggrandizement. So physical beauty, aesthetics matter. Maybe more than most things, actually. And we can debate what is beauty. But it won't be a very long debate because, like pornography, we know it when we see it. What is beauty, say the academics? I don't know. Uh, go to a Shinto shrine in Japan. You don't even know what Shinto is. I didn't when I went there. I don't have any idea what this weird religion is. I don't know anything about Japan. I've never been to a shrine of any kind. I'm an Episcopalian. I show up at the shrine... And I immediately recognize this is beautiful in a way that doesn't make full sense to my Western brain. I've never seen it before. I've never been confronted with these forms, but I know it the second I see it. This square is beautiful. Yeah. Leaving aside all the momentous things that must have happened on those cobblestones, this square is beautiful. It was created to remind you that something is bigger, something is more important, and you are part of that. Okay, so that was a lot. Yeah. I mean, Tucker should just move. I was just going to say that. Why doesn't Tucker just move to Montana or something? <laughs> you could be you could be so much happier, man. <laughs> For real. Um I wrote down a couple other things. Um he talks about brutalist architecture. 
Um, nowhere in America has brutalist architecture. <laughs> what are you talking about? Okay. Um, and then I am a hundred percent certain that Tucker and I will disagree on what is and is not porn. <laughs> In at least some circumstances. So it's not as simple as, oh, you know it when you see it. Um, and then he talks about, like, people feeling like drones. Um, that's, uh, that's capitalism. We can, we can uh, fix that. We can, make that. we can make that better if people, like, actually had some say in their lives. <laughs> God, like it... If most of the population wasn't relegated to meaningless jobs that they got no fulfillment out of, yeah, like imagine how much less a drone-like life would be. Yeah. <laughs> or if you didn't have to work forty hours a week to barely make rent, like you could spend some of your time doing something that you, I don't know, wanted to do. <laughs> so yeah, he, here here's Tucker's closer to finish off his uh, his his speech here. So the last thing I'll say is. You know, I, I don't think if you're Hungarian, you fully understand how provocative your country is to the rest of the world. And I have had, I've had probably 20 people say to me, well, we're just hungry, like we're this little country, nobody thinks about us. You know, we just get invaded a lot and produce great literature, but no one cares. Well, people do care. They care because your example, not because you're taking Transylvania back. We're sending. I'm not going to endorse that. Not, not because you threaten your neighbors, let me put it that way. Not because you have aims of territorial expansion or because you're inventing some microchip that the Chinese couldn't figure out. No. Because of the quiet, happy simplicity that's obvious when people visit here the cleanliness, the order, the openness of the society, the, the lack of crime, the control of the board. These are not complicated concepts. These are things that in my childhood we took for granted in the United States but no longer can. You still have them. And that offends the people who have so misruled the West that our countries no longer do have those things. I don't mean super complicated networked washing machines. Who cares? There was a, one of the dumbest columnists that we have in the United States. There's no IQ test for columnists in the United States, and, and there probably should be, but there is, and our First Amendment prohibits it. Wrote a piece today saying, the problem with Hungary is it's not a model for the United States. It's 10 million people. Like, they, you know, we couldn't replicate what they have here. And on one level, I guess that's true. I mean, I don't understand. It's a parliamentary system. I don't even know how that works, and I've covered politics for 30 years. Well, of course, we're not going to recreate the Hungarian parliament in Washington. Like, what? No. The lessons of Hungary have nothing to do with your system of government or your specific leaders or the results of this or that election. The lessons are much deeper. Care about your country. Try to make it nice in the most simple way. Not the richest, not the most technologically advanced, not a place with the most LEED certified buildings. But places like, a place where people can, I don't know, do crazy things like have children if they want to. Yeah. In a country where they might want to raise those children. Where they might be able to eat food that's not pumped full of garbage. That destroys your body. And lowers your testosterone level. To the point where your sex is indistinct. Not that that's happening anywhere. That doesn't happen anywhere. Like, decent food, 
decent streets, safe, clean, family-oriented. How complex is this? Not very. It would have been recognizable a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, before you guys even showed up here in this plane. Calling it a plane? Basin, excuse me. It would have been recognizable at any time in history. These are the things that people actually want. They don't even know what the GDP is. They'd like to be richer rather than poor, get it? But mostly, they want to live unmolested, following their own customs that they inherited from their parents that they hope to pass on to their children without being lectured or hurt. In an environment that uplifts rather than degrades. In a place that is clean rather than filthy, orderly rather than chaotic. That's what human beings want in every culture. In Africa, Asia, Australia, maybe not Australia, but just kidding. But in, in every place around the world, because it's not a cultural desire, it's an innate human desire. And any government that takes that into account and tries to achieve it should be proud of what it's doing. The people who live there should be grateful, and they should not allow the people who have mismanaged the rest of the world to tell them otherwise. Period. So stay proud of what you have. I'm sorry for talking so fast. You run me into a frenzy. I really appreciate being here. God bless you. So, clean streets, that's all he's got, that's that's what this country has that America doesn't? Yeah, it, it's kind of like when we played that clip of, on, on our Critical Race Theory episode where Tucker was talking about why America is great, and it was like, we don't eat dogs and we have natural beauty, <laughs> like, uh, like, here too, his... his re- He's making this impassioned argument for the greatness of Hungary, and it seems so shallow. It's extremely shallow. Like, American streets aren't, like, dirty. Yeah, I mean, it depends on where you are, but I mean, like... Yeah. I live in a really small town, and, like, litter's pretty rare. But, like, it happens sometimes, I guess. Tucker lives most of the time in rural Maine. Like, you're not going to tell me he's dealing with defecation on the streets. Yeah, like... He's just, he's living in a fake world. Like, he's just... Yeah. and Like, it seems shallow because he can't say what he actually likes about Hungary, which is the preservation of... Its... Ethno-nationalism. <laughs> yeah. He, 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 can't, he can't talk about Hungary for 20 seconds without talking about how great their border is. Yeah, yeah. You're, like, when he says cleanliness, he means, like racial cleanliness yeah, and like dirty people class cleanliness like there's i don't have to see the poor people yeah around here and like maybe if we fixed poverty you wouldn't have to see poor people in america <laughs> but he yeah. just he just wants to like shove everyone under a bridge and then <laughs> yeah it i don't like what like, he doesn't see them as people but like what does he think would solve the problem like just like just shoving people push it over there like i don't know i don't understand how you get to that conclusion no tucker's entire political worldview is that fucking patrick meme (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) and i we're creeping up fast on four hours. Yep, so we sure are. We're, we're going to get out of here quick, but I, I, I do have some, some closing thoughts. Okay. Wonderful. In researching Viktor Orban's Hungary, it, it was impossible to not stumble across article after article and take after take 
about the similarities between Orban and Trump. And I don't know if I agree with that, but I'll, I'll let you finish. Yeah, and I, I will say, like, th- th- there's there's some surface level similarities, like xenophobia and Orban built a border wall. Yeah, like oh. they're both fascists, but like Victor Orban is a functional human being. <laughs> yeah, and I something I think Trump is temperamentally a fascist. I don't think that he is ideologically or intellectually anything. I don't think he could tell you what fascism is if you asked him. He just comes by it naturally. Right. Uh, Orban is a different animal. I mean, in that quote about illiberal democracy or Christian democracy, he was explicitly talking about it as a model that can be exported to other places. And Tucker is not the first American conservative to sniff Victor Orban's throne. This is this is old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. This is <laughs> this is older than Trump. Like in in 2014, Viktor Orban hired uh, a former U.S. congressman and turned lobbyist named Connie Mack to basically go, go to Congress as a lobbyist for Viktor Orban's brand and sell him to the American right wing as like uh, a hero for their causes. Um, he explicitly wanted that PR in the States. And Steve Bannon, he, he's called Orban Trump before Trump. I almost think that, because I mean, Victor Orban built this fence in 2015 and then sent the bill to the EU. I almost think that Trump's, we're going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it, was Bannon whispering in his ear like, hey, Orban did this cool thing. Yeah, now that you say that. Um, and like... It, there's this guy, Rod Dreher. He's he's a frequent writer for the American Conservative. He's really influential in the evangelical right community. Uh, he wrote this book called The Benedict Option about how Christians should retreat to their own communities outside of the rest of American civilization. Um, ah, yes. A cult will solve the problem. And Rod Dreher, I believe he is still in Hungary. He's been living there since April. And uh, he wrote this in in The American Conservative about Tucker Carlson's trip to Hungary. Quote, it is quite sensible that Tucker Carlson and other conservatives would want to figure out what the leader of this small, relatively poor Central European country has done to hold off the, those like George Soros and the woke leadership of the European Union to defend this country and its sovereignty. With their own conservative establishment either neutered or sidelined by pointless lib-owning enthusiasms, thinkers of the American right who actually care about saving our civilization ought to be coming to Hungary and Poland to study these places. And make common cause with these people. They could use your solidarity, and we could certainly use theirs. Wow, anti-Semitic dog whistling. Yeah, it just... And, I mean, you have... I mean, Trump is gone, and we're coming up on... Uh, well, gone... Don't say gone too loudly. It, gone from literal power. Okay. <laughs> and and we, we, we're coming up on what is sure to be some horrific gerrymandering on the right. What I'm getting at is the the Republican Party has been an illiberal party for a while. Like, do you remember when Wisconsin elected a a Democratic governor, so then state Republicans uh, passed a bunch of laws to remove powers from the governor? Yeah. (laughs) Like... I thought that happened in a couple of places, but... It probably did. Um, I thought there were efforts for that when Whitmer came in. There might have been, actually, now that you say it. And then, like, there are all these voting restrictions, and, like, it... 
in I believe I believe on the twenty second of this month, there's a large fascist march planned in Portland. That if any of you are planning to go as counter demonstrators, God bless you. <laughs> it. What I'm getting at is that we didn't defeat fascism when we got rid of Trump. No. Like there are a lot of these fights ahead, and I. Like I, I try to make I try to. I'm gonna say this, and you're gonna laugh at me, but I try to make light of what I can on this show, but... (laughs) (laughs) I am gonna laugh at that. (laughs) I think we need to take this shit seriously. I mean, like, I I, I don't know what the answer is, but I I don't want to live in Hungary. No. Tucker Carlson does. Yeah. You should move there. (laughs) And we, we need to be honest and aware of what these forces in our politics are trying to trying to do yeah so it's like really disappointing that our political establishment trump said out loud your administration the obama administration was the reason i ran and then the democrats in order to defeat him put up the vice president (laughs) of the administration that made Trump want to run, and they're like, oh, we fixed it. Yeah, it's just, like, it's really indicative of some systemic problems that we have going on here. <laughs> yeah, it, and I I, I, I could bore you with thoughts for days on that, but we just hit 401. Great. So, <laughs> like, we're going to get out of here, but if you weren't already, take this shit seriously. Like, find out what what you can get involved in locally um if you have the means what causes you can support and i'm and i'm not talking about us like there are better causes to support yeah <laughs> honestly just fucking voting yeah like just, look when voting time comes around look up your ballots and then vote like <laughs> like the, we need to be yeah. in this yeah. and uh, that's what i got so okay Tyler, what's our sworn enemy? Our sworn enemy are the illiberal, (laughs) post-Christian, post-nationalists who are running the world from George Soros' basement. (laughs) (laughs) All right, this has been a... (laughs) <laughs> this has been a stupid long episode of Tuckered Out. Thank you to everybody who's still here. Um, you mad, you fucking lunatics. And because I forgot <laughs> to do it at the top, I want to give a shout out to our listener, Ronnie, who... Uh, oh, I was going to mention that and yeah, I forgot. Yeah, uh, Ronnie took some time out of his week to uh, to help me fix some audio issues I've been having on this show, so hopefully it sounds better for you now. Yeah, so you might have noticed there's less snap, crackle, pop today. <laughs> yeah, so th- thank you very much to Ronnie for that. Um, Very cool and, of you, Ronnie. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back. In the meantime, we've got a website. Uh, it's tucker.pod.com. We're on Twitter at tucker.pod. There's the Facebook group, Woke Aristas. Uh, um, you can find us on Patreon, tucker.pod. I think that's everything. Um I believe so. We'll be, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, don't watch Tucker's show. I'll do it for you, and try to enjoy your life. Thanks for listening. Buck up. It's going to get better. <laughs>